great. So I think we are uh, live. We are global. And I'm very glad to have uh, Professor uh, Nogalen for this live. So uh, I have mentioned, I mean, some of the uh, awards, et cetera, that he had, like a Dijekstra Prize, Godel Prize, uh, ACM Tchanelakis, uh, and uh, Shaw Prize, and among lots of other awards. But here I want to start with some, I mean, personal stories, actually. So uh, I think it was a uh, summer of uh, 2004 or 2003, I believe, that I was an intern at Microsoft Research. And at that time, it was supposed that, I mean, we are giving some talk. Uh, and I think, it, like, this was a joint talk, actually. Eric Demain was there, and he was giving a talk, and I was there. I think part of it maybe my talk as well. And we had a paper. I mean, we just submitted. and. Uh, at the end, uh, Eric actually mentioned some open problems that we don't know the answer. Just uh, after the talk, I mean, <laughs> Nugan came and said, okay, I solved that problem. It felt like amazing. And I mean, we had actually lots of discussion with uh, Noga and uh, Eric. I mean, that's a few days that Eric and Noga were both at Microsoft. We were talking about uh, like a uh, several research stuff. And one thing that, uh, I mean, Noga was already a professor, well-known professor at that time. And I was like an intern student at MIT. And it was actually one thing that I uh, uh, caught my eye, like he's actually very humble. And I mean, he has lots of papers, like uh, I think 600 papers. We talk about that and the way that he's so productive. Uh, but also he, he, he has been very humble. We had. Uh, I think that paper later, he also, uh, that was interesting that he had written up actually everything that we discussed and sent us to us. Oh, this is the proof that I have written it formally. That it was also very interesting that, I mean, <laughs> like he had written everything. Later we had, I think, another paper about network. This was about some embedding paper, then it was some network creation. I think that was a direct something that came to Tom Layton, to Graham, and I think he mentioned the problem to you, or Fan Chang mentioned the problem, but anyhow. Uh, but during this year, uh, I think I was uh, really uh, I mean, amazed by the knowledge and the humbleness of <laughs> Brother Magallan. And uh, this is like all the time, I will say probably, I mean, I don't know any person who has the knowledge in combinatorics, especially and the graphs that Noga had it. Anytime that I had a problem, I mean, I just uh, emailed him uh, some question and just a few hours sometime later, I got the answer. And it was amazing. It was something about the RS graph, for example, later happened or others. And yeah, so that's the thing that I thought that that would be, I mean, great things. And of course he's already I mean, very well known. And we will uh, talk about, I mean, some of uh, this and uh, like the, all the, I mean, uh, way that he's, uh, I mean, so productive, I think. Uh, uh, probably, I mean, we have the Erdos number, we may have, a, uh, I mean, maybe in the future, Alan's number. In that case, I will be happy, I mean, to have the Alan number one. Uh, but uh, having said that, uh, yeah, uh, so uh, let's start, uh, I mean, with uh, uh, Noga. I mean, do you want to say a few words? I mean, starting, then we are asking I mean, some questions, we discuss about life research, everything. 
Sure, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so thanks, uh, uh, Muhammad. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, and I'm really uh, impressed uh, with this uh, initiative and, uh, and how much uh, time and energy you invest in it. Uh, uh, I should say uh, right away. So, so I remember that uh, uh, collaboration in uh, uh, some almost uh, twenty years ago. And, and I should say that these are these things that sometimes uh, happen when you uh, when you hear a question and it's uh, just very similar to things you know or to things that you uh, you've thought about. Uh, so so some people sometimes may find it uh, impressive uh, uh, because it looks as if you are kind of solving the problem instantaneously. But uh, uh, but really, the reason is often that uh, that you just uh, thought about uh, something very uh, similar uh, before, and uh, and therefore it uh, it comes uh, uh, naturally. Uh, yeah, again, I mean, thank. But I think uh, the, the question that I have asked, I can remember that they were not that trivial. So surely, I think it is the humbleness that you will say that. But yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, the, your knowledge. I think that's the part that I mentioned actually at the first, that, uh, that I think you have a very good knowledge about the whole community. That is, I have not seen in anyone else that I can say this level that, especially, I mean, there are, of course, I mean, there are different fields, but I think in the graphs or others, like I was uh, truly impressed in that uh, thing. Uh, great. So I think uh, having said that, let's start. Uh, I mean, from the uh, beginning. So I think maybe you want to uh, talk a little bit. I mean, when you were a child, essentially. I think you have been born in Haifa, and then uh, uh, I mean, when you were a child, I mean, did you like math? How was uh, like the your or this was like later you became math? And also, you started with math. Then, I mean, you have done several papers actually in computer science. I think you have eighty-four soda facts stack uh, papers, and I mean, especially the stack facts paper are like actually quite large. And uh, 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 and I mean, like in terms of papers, I think as a content that last time, I think last week maybe it changed actually increased for now four hundred twenty-three journals and one hundred seventy-six conference papers. And I mean, a book that you have, The Probabilistic Method and uh, uh, with uh, Joel Spencer. So these are the things that I mean, you have it now, but I mean, when you were a child, have you considered that? I mean, talk about a little bit about your family, et cetera, and then, yeah. Sure, yeah. So I can, uh, yeah, yeah, I should mention, by the way, that the numbers of papers are not, uh, is not such an important, uh, I mean, this more says about the way a person works and some people write more, some people write less. Uh, it's more important what you write and what you do, and, uh, and not only the numbers, but of course now in the internet era, it's so easy to get all these statistics uh, immediately about uh, numbers and citations and uh, and uh, everything. So uh, so this is what we tend to do. But but let me talk about uh, childhood. So so really, I. I knew very early on that I'm interested in, uh, uh, it was more mathematics at that time, uh, maybe computer science uh, was less developed. Uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, maybe I had uh, uh, my own opinion as a child uh, about what it is to be a mathematician, which maybe does not have very much to do with uh, reality. 
but still I was always uh, very uh, interested in solving uh, puzzles and in uh, uh, reading about the uh, history of mathematics. Uh, so, uh, so I think that, uh, that really since uh, elementary school, I was, uh, uh, I was interested in, uh, uh, in mathematical puzzles. And I thought that this is what I want to do. Uh, uh, although uh, maybe I didn't uh, know exactly what it means uh, uh, to, be a, uh, to be a mathematician in academy. And I think that one thing that appealed to me was this uh, objective nature of the subject. That somehow uh, there is this uh, uh, absolute uh, uh, definition of, uh, of truth. I mean, something that is correct is, is correct, and uh, you don't, you cannot argue about it. And uh, and I think that this was something that uh, that I always uh, liked. Uh, uh, yeah, actually, one story is that uh, that I had uh, from an early age, and uh, and you know I I have been telling this story uh, already uh, maybe twice or three times, so I'm I'm not completely sure now if what I remember is exactly how it was or I remember how I'm telling it, but uh, yeah. but still I think it's pretty accurate. And that was when I was uh, 11 or 12 years old. My parents had some uh, people visiting for the Eurovision song contests. So there was this uh, song contest and several countries participate. And then the way it goes is that uh, every country is voting and, uh, and according to the votes, uh, then there are the results. Yes. And the, the friends of my parents, uh, they wanted to amuse themselves, so, uh, so they tried to guess the final uh, ordering. And each one, each person uh, gave uh, uh, his or her ranking of what, uh, what they think the, answer, the final ranking would be. And, uh, and then uh, afterwards they heard the results and, uh, and they decided to give a score to decide who was closest. And this was basically what they do was the L1 distance between the, uh, the guest ranking and the actual ranking. So yes. some country was number three and I guess that it was number two then it gives an error of one and so on and we sum the absolute values of the differences over all countries uh, yeah, so i think uh, to just give an idea about the l1 difference that you are just putting this done essentially in two lines essentially and you will right. just compute what was your the rank the correct ranking what was your guess ranking what is the difference and you will sum it up over all that's right so you sum the absolute values of the differences say uh, right and then, uh, so they did the computation and, uh, uh, and they found out that uh, every score was an even integer. But, uh, and then they started to discuss, uh, so I was in the other room, I was not, uh, but, uh, and they started to discuss if, uh, if this must be the case. And uh, my, my parents were not mathematicians, but, uh, but my mother had uh, always a very good mathematical intuition. And she said she's convinced that it must be even, but some guy there who was actually an engineer, he, uh, he said that not, that it can, it can be odd and he's willing to pay it. And 
And you know, they had this uh, discussion and, uh, and finally my mother said that, uh, that let's uh, call Noga and uh, ask him. So she knew I'm interested. <laughs> uh, okay, so I came, I was uh, a relatively small child, but uh, and they told me the problem and I thought about it and, uh, and indeed it's not so difficult, uh, although maybe then uh, they had to think, uh, it's not so difficult to see that it has to be even. And you are talking about the sum should be even. About the sum, the sum yes, of absolute values. Yes. And, uh, and the reason is basically because if you take the sum with no absolute values, then it is zero because it is uh, the uh, sum of all the ranks minus again yes. the sum of all the ranks. And when you change a number from minus to plus, then you change it by an even number. Oh, yeah, okay. So this is basically the argument. Uh, and, uh, and I was uh, happy to see it and, uh, and I kind of told them. And, uh, but the nice thing, uh, so I'm saying it uh, not because uh, I was so proud. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not a difficult thing, but, but I was able to uh, convince this uh, adult, this engineer that, uh, that indeed this must be even. So I kind of showed him the argument and he agreed and he really said, you know what, you are right, I was wrong. And I think what impressed me, you know, usually when you argue with someone about politics, I don't know. I mean, it's never the case that uh, party A is telling party B, you are right, I was wrong. I mean, we all get more and more convinced of our original opinion. Yes, exactly. Because, uh, but in mathematics, it's different, right? I mean, you can prove and even if you are a child, a 12-year-old child, you, you can convince a grown engineer and he will admit at the end that you are right. So I think this is one thing that I always liked about uh, mathematics or science, computer science, that uh, things have an inherent uh, truth and you can uh, uh, convince someone about, uh, about some uh, uh, validity of some uh, statement. And, uh, and this is one thing that I liked about the subject, uh, besides, of course, the elegance and the, uh, and, uh, the, the challenge uh, and, uh, and the fact that, uh, that it's uh, interesting. Yeah, actually, I think this is, uh, I think, a very great point. And this is somehow unique to math. Even you mentioned about social science, like politics, others. But even like a regular science also, I mean, we see Hobel, um, like this uh, James Webb and other things that we get it. I, think, I mean, we get something. This is our thinking of the world, essentially. But I mean, there is no proof that it should be like that. Or I mean, the quantum, I think we were talking about quantum and we were talking with Professor Peter Schwartz said, okay, maybe next time there is something that is doing even more complicated and can say quantum and other type of mechanics that we have. But in math, is somehow the only one that you can be really convinced. This is the proof and that's it essentially. So yeah, this is right, because, uh, because everything is completely rigorous. There are definitions and, uh, and we, we are not in physics, you are trying to understand how the, uh, how the world behaves. Uh, so, you know, maybe uh, we, we learn quantum mechanics, may, maybe, uh, maybe the way it actually behaves is a little different uh, or, or maybe a lot different than what we think. But with mathematics, we just have to be consistent with the uh, axioms and, uh, uh, and with the logic rules and, uh, and therefore uh, uh, the 
the notion of truth is uh, is completely uh, well defined. Uh, great. So uh, yeah, so I think uh, you answered actually very nicely this one with a very uh, starting with a very good intuition about math and the difference with others. So uh, uh, have you participated in any math competition? I think it was the IMO at the time that you were. I think it was right. a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, so what happened is, uh, so in Israel, there were two uh, main mathematics competitions for high school, uh, and, uh, and I won uh, both, uh, indeed. Uh, and uh, so one was uh, uh, being organized by the Weizmann Institute and, uh, and one by the Technion, uh, but it was, uh, uh, but this was just uh, national. And unfortunately, at that time, uh, Israel uh, uh, still uh, didn't participate in IMO. So I, I graduated uh, from high school in, uh, uh, in 1974. And I think Israel started a few years later, which is a pity because I think I liked it and uh, maybe it would have been interesting to... Uh, to yeah, I think it have it that, I mean, that was maybe. interesting that like yeah. <laughs> have the... So I think uh, you got your uh, PhD also in 1983. So I think, yeah, that was, at that time, I think uh, had, uh, that, uh, because I was talking with Professor Peter Shore and I mean, he actually participated in the, he had a silver medal in IMO. I mean, I had it later, of course, much later I have it in IOI, a silver medal. But I think, yeah, having that actually is a good one. Like anything that motivates me is just that one, that I have achieved something in my high school years that continued after that. Uh, great. And uh, do you want to say, uh, I mean, about, uh, what about your family? Do you have uh, your children? Did any of them took the math day or like grandchildren or you tried to convince them or you didn't even try to convince them? So, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely I didn't try to convince. Let me also mention, by the way, another thing that maybe influenced me as a child is that uh, already in the end of uh, high school, I met uh, Paul Erdens. So he used to visit Israel uh, quite often. Uh, he had this uh, kind of uh, permanent visiting uh, uh, position <laughs> in the Technion. And uh, so he would come often and uh, and the secretary uh, in the math department at the Technion was a good friend of my mother. So, uh, so really I met uh, Erdes when I was still uh, uh, a teenager and, uh, uh, and he asked me, so we had some discussions. Uh, it, was, uh, it was quite, uh, quite influential. Uh, now about my family, so I have three daughters. Uh, they are all grown, so we uh, we started very early. So I was a, a young father, and in uh, uh, my uh, eldest daughter, she studied first degree in mathematics and computer science. But uh, uh, and she worked a, a little bit in high tech. But uh, afterwards, she did a second degree in business school, and uh, uh, and she's not really in uh, academia. I never tried to. Uh, to influence and in fact, I was a little bit surprised that this is what she chose. Uh, I mean, I knew she was good, but she was never kind of uh, really uh, extremely enthusiastic about it. Uh, so I was, uh, but uh, uh, but she, yeah, she she was uh, good. Uh, my other daughters are not. I mean, now they are all in some sort of high tech because this is what people are doing uh, yeah. nowadays. But. Uh, uh, but uh, but they didn't go to academy, and uh, and they are all married, and uh, uh, we actually have already uh, seven uh, grandchildren. So so that's uh, uh, that's great. Uh, the youngest is just uh, half a year old, uh, 
Uh, yeah, congratulations. Actually, uh, I have my daughter is like nine months old as well. So I, I'm uh, like a big parent is one level closer to the difficulty. But yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. But you are uh, right. Yeah, but, but learned, so my my parents always uh, so as I said, my parents are not uh, are not in academia. Uh, my, my mother uh, studied uh, history, but uh, but basically and what was also a, a a writer and uh, but uh, uh, and my father was a businessman uh, basically uh, but uh, but they always encouraged uh, me and my brother to uh, to do whatever we like uh, I think this was very important so uh, so they uh, uh, kind of told us that it's uh, important to do things seriously and to uh, uh, and, and to like what you do, but uh, but you can choose uh, anything uh, that you like to do. They never tried to uh, uh, force us in some directions that they thought would be more practical or uh, uh, or whatever. And in uh, the same, uh, and this was uh, my uh, behavior uh, with my daughters uh, also. And, uh, and, uh, and I think uh, they are doing well. Yeah, I think uh, that's, uh, I mean, a, a great point. So, uh, so that is also interesting. I think the way that you have been, I mean, have been introduced to Paul Erdos. By the way, he's like, I mean, essentially, probably the most well-known combinatorics person. I mean, like graph theory, I will say. And he has, I think, the most number of papers in combinatorics. I don't know, even computer science, probably. I mean, now there's a computer science I cannot say because there are all these conferences that people can right. publish a lot. But after this conference, like Nurips and others were there, I think he definitely had the most number of papers. And this Erdos number is like a very famous thing that the people, and he has done, I think, great work on uh, probabilistic and uh, Analysis, especially, I think that's probably one of the main things, and combinatorics, of course. So we just mentioned, but I think the fact that you had access to him, and I think maybe through your mother and the secretary, and talk with uh, him, I think that was very. Uh, I mean, maybe that actually motivated you more. That might be the case. Like, of course, like your grandchildren now they have access to you, and you can play even better role. But maybe I mean, you're. I mean, it's too easy to access. That may not happen. Yeah, have you talked? Tried to talk with them, or they try to talk with you about doing yes, that? So, uh, so I tried. I mean, with, with my daughters, I, uh, I talked a little bit when when they were uh, studying in uh, high school but uh, uh, but somehow uh, uh, and later maybe in university uh, somehow it was difficult for me so usually I uh, I mean they were uh, uh, not very patient uh, it's uh, it somehow, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you yeah I completely know what I mean like I have yeah. the same thing with my daughter as right. well, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't uh, and my my uh, grandchildren. Uh, so uh, there is one who is now uh, eight years old, uh, one of the eldest, uh, and he is somewhat uh, interested. So he, uh, from time to time, uh, uh, talks with me about uh, about questions uh, or mathematical puzzles that he heard in school. And uh, and when he's asking, I'm telling him, or maybe sometimes I would tell him some puzzles, but. Uh, but again, not uh, not so much, and uh, and actually now anyway, much of the time I'm in Princeton, and uh, and he's in Israel, so I see him uh, mostly uh, uh, during the summer or in uh, uh, or via Zoom. So we yeah. don't uh, uh, <laughs> we don't talk about mathematics too much, but uh, 
And I don't, as I said, I don't, uh, I'm sure that they will uh, find uh, their various things. Right. Uh, great. And uh, was there anything like, for example, in high school, especially at that time for math, or was there anything about computer science actually at the time that you were studying or not much? Or like, so I think you what, mentioned two programs uh, that you competed on that, but anything other than that? Yeah, so not much in high school. I mean, definitely in a, uh, when I was uh, doing my first degree, at the Technion, so I studied mathematics, but I already took some courses uh, in computer science. Uh, and uh, in high school, we also had some uh, excellent uh, mathematics teacher at the end of high school, uh, someone who came from the former Soviet Union, where he was actually training uh, uh, some children to uh, math competitions uh, in Russia. and. Uh, and he had, uh, so he was teaching some of us uh, some advanced uh, mathematics and, uh, and I was very uh, enthusiastic uh, about that. Uh, uh, so, uh, and then later, uh, so I did uh, my first degree was at the Technion in the second, because actually one of these math competitions that I won, uh, the, the first prize was uh, was a tuition for all the degree in the Technion. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so, uh, so there I already uh, took also some courses in computer science. Uh, and, uh, and one of the professors of discrete mathematics at the Technion, uh, Chaim Hanani, was also some second uncle of me, so some sort of a uh, relative and uh, and he was uh, he was also a friend of Erdes. Uh, they have uh, they have one or two joint papers, and uh, and also through him uh, uh, I met uh, Erdes uh, during uh, my uh, uh, bachelor my undergraduate uh, studies. Uh, afterwards, uh, the second degree. So I was uh, you know in Israel there is this compulsory military service. And uh, I was in what is called academic reserve, uh, which means that you first study and then your service is some sort of applied research. But, uh, but since I was drafted uh, right after uh, the Yom Kippur War, so first they canceled this academic reserve and I spent a year in the tanks, uh, so in Sinai, like a real soldier. I never fought or something, but it was like, a, and uh, but, but then they uh, they renewed it and and then I finished uh, the undergraduate degree and uh, and after that I was uh, an officer in some place of applied research and during that time I did both the master degree and the PhD, which means that uh, I was never kind of a, a normal graduate student. I was just coming to the university maybe one day a week and uh, uh but when you when you are young you you can do everything so so you know i would go to to a seminar uh, in the uh so my my second degree i did at the uh, in tel aviv university and the phd in the hebrew university of jerusalem but uh, but both of these were during the service so uh, so it was hardly at the university and i was mostly studying uh, Maybe during the night, or or studying uh, one day a week in daytime, and then uh, 
and then staying in the office until night. Uh, so still, it somehow uh, worked uh, worked well, and uh, and I finished a PhD together with finishing the the service. So this was uh, eighty three, and uh, and then I did the uh, postdoc in uh, in MIT. So I was uh, two yeah. years in. Uh, in Boston. Uh, yeah. So uh, you got your PhD with uh, Misha uh, Perlis, and I think on exter uh, extremal problems in combinatorics in 1983. So, and I think that is somehow maybe is the, like a, some kind of umbrella of all of your works. So how was your work with him? And I mean, do you want to say some stories about the way that he advised? And I think I want to come, I mean, like you have 23 students at least, I mean, according to math, uh, genealogy and, I mean, you have, I think, at least again, probably more than that, 79 grand uh, or uh, grand, grand uh, academic uh, uh, children. So, uh, yeah, so I think the way that he advised, I mean, you there and uh, the way that you are advising your students. So, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, actually, by the way, I, uh, since you mentioned academic uh, uh, grandchildren and so on, I just had uh, now a paper written with one uh, a great, great uh, academic uh, uh, grandchild. So, yeah. so like uh, uh, one, two, three, four generations. Uh, four generations. So this is, That's uh, great. <laughs> I think it's actually uh, great. One. I mean, the real life, it might be hard actually to catch that things. But uh, in academic right. things, actually, you can actually have an even probably yeah. a higher depth as well yeah 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 i think uh, i think at the moment i only have one uh, uh, one academic uh, uh, four generation uh, uh, descendant but uh, but but there is a potential for uh, for several others uh, yeah exactly uh, yeah they are yeah. uh right yeah so uh yeah so working with uh, Micha Perles was uh, was interesting so he, he was a uh, uh, he he's a guy that uh, is very good. I think uh, he uh, uh, you may know also. So other students of him were uh, more or less at that time, or roughly that time, were in Nati Lineal and Gil Gil Kalai. So he Gil had several. Uh, 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 but he he never wrote much, so he didn't like to write, uh, okay. and he uh, so. He really, one thing he taught me was how important it is to, uh, to write very accurately. So to check everything uh, uh, 10 times, 20 times, and 30 times that you, you can, uh, you always uh, will be able to find typos, that it's very important, uh, accurate writing. And he was re really a little bit... Uh, even obsessive about this, uh, in the sense that you know he, he would sometimes get in his mailbox, uh, you know, one of the usual flyers telling you that I don't know tomorrow's it will be a power break, and he would take this flower and uh, flyer and start to correct the typos there. <laughs> so he writes, but but, but he, I think he was not writing correct, so he was just reading. <laughs> Making yeah, right. so, so he was writing uh, very little. Uh, he, yeah. uh, but 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 he was uh, but he was extremely good, and also he was very interested in uh, combinatorial geometry. So he kind of taught me the beauty of uh, 
of the connection between discrete mathematics and, uh, and combinatorial geometry and convexity theory. And, uh, uh, and this was, uh, uh, right, but indeed uh, writing with him, uh, uh, we, we have maybe one joint paper was really, uh, uh, was really very difficult because he, he had to go over everything uh, like lots and lots of times until he was happy with the way it was written. It was, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, which was- uh, yeah, Actually, I had experienced exactly this when I had got my master actually, with my advisor at that time. I think at that time I didn't like it, of course. <laughs> it was like one of the worst uh, uh, summer for me that I was writing the master thesis. But I think later actually I learned a lot from that. So that I always, later actually I learned a lot from those times because when you put higher standards, I mean, that is, I mean, maybe hard at that time, but later it has been passed just uh, maybe uh, just uh, some, I mean, essentially the usefulness still remains and then you maybe more precise right. in yeah, writing. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, uh, it was interesting. So it took me some time to realize uh, you know, because he would look at, uh, I would usually come with something I have written with a paper and pencil at that time, we still didn't type. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then he would look at a sentence uh, for, I don't know, 10 whole minutes and suggest, I don't know, to move uh, a comma from here to there. But uh, then at the same time, he would also look at the, uh, sentence uh, for 10 minutes and suggest to improve the statement of the theorem considerably. So it took me some time to realize that really he's actually very deep, but he just, he wants everything to, to look perfect, but at the same time, he is also able to come with, uh, with some great ideas and some, uh, uh, so, so it was, uh, it was really a, a, a good a good experience, I think. And uh, have you, I mean, published a lot during that time? I mean, so a I long wrote, time. Uh, uh, I, I wrote um, quite a few papers uh, during PhD. I don't remember. Maybe uh, uh, maybe nowadays people write even more, but probably I had uh, ten or twelve papers uh, written uh, as, yeah. as a student. Uh, maybe even a bit more, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, so I, I was always uh, interested in uh, uh, in kind of a lot of problems and, and indeed uh, mostly, as you said, the extremal problems, so problems where we kind of uh, try to understand the maximum or minimum possible uh, size of a structure that satisfies a, certain uh, uh, properties and uh, and this uh, uh, naturally appears in many areas not, not only in discrete mathematics but also in uh, geometry in probability number theory and uh, and of course in in computer science uh, so uh, uh, so I was uh, I, I really like this uh, and I still like problems in which uh, just problems in which the word minimum or maximum appears, but you see that it's really everywhere, right? You, you can say that, uh, that uh, the PNP problem is the same, right? Because it asks uh, what is the minimum uh, amount of time in which you can solve uh, 
say the click problem or any NPR problem. Yeah, or any, I mean, essentially any optimization, of course, the minimization and maximization. And right. like, nowadays, yeah. all the tech essentially, they try to minimize, I don't know, the, maybe the delay, they try to maximize revenue. So everything is like that. And I think I will say even the algorithms that is like that. So even when I think that was interesting that I, when I was talking about my thesis, I, think, I mean, my thesis was essentially all algorithms. However, I mean, there were lots of theorems that I proved about the graphs, like planar graph or H minor three graph. And, uh, but I mean, of course, I mean, I was using all of these structures to get the algorithm. So in some sense, an algorithm is somehow built of this kind of a structural results. And these are like the, this is the better understanding of essentially this structure that can be, of course, very complicated. I mean, uh, as you know, much better in that uh, sense. Uh, great. So uh, now what about your PhD students? How, what was the style working with them? Did it change? Because I think I was talking with some other people and said, oh, we, it was at the beginning is like that, at the end changed to this. So what was the beginning? What was the end? And how was the process? Okay, so I uh, I tried uh, always and I still try to encourage uh, uh, PhD students uh, to also come with their own problems, to be independent, and uh, and actually it's great when they work with each other. Sometimes it happened to me, and uh, I think in the uh, so most of my students, uh, I mean now I have a few in Princeton, but most of them are from uh, uh, from Israel, from Tel Aviv University. And in, uh, in Israel, maybe it's less common that uh, students uh, collaborate with each other. Uh, like in, uh, uh, in the US, it's very common. So usually uh, it's, uh, and, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's great when it works, uh, uh, but, uh, but they also try to think uh, together with the students on problems. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and I think it did, change a little bit at least over the years so one thing is that uh, maybe i became more modest so when i was young i was kind of sure that uh, after a few minutes or half an hour that i talk with someone uh, say a student i know how talented they are i, I kind of can estimate uh, and it took me some years to realize that this is completely wrong, that what you see quickly is how fast people are, which exactly. is an important thing. But, uh, but you know, but some people are extremely deep, although, uh, although maybe they are not as fast. And, uh, and then it takes, and, and in general, different people are different. So, so there are many ways of, uh, of being a very good scientist. And... Uh, and I think that over the years I was lucky to have uh, to have several uh, superb students, and uh, and I still am, and uh, and I think uh, I I, uh, uh, I actually learned a lot from my students, and I and I still feel that I'm uh, that I'm learning uh, from them, uh, and not only from students, also from uh, other collaborators. Uh, and, uh, and I still, I try uh, at the beginning to suggest some problems and to think together with them, but, uh, uh, but it's great when, uh, when they are independent uh, enough to come with their own problems. And, uh, and this, uh, this often happens and, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's very nice. Uh, so uh, and I had students both uh, in uh, computer science and in, uh, in mathematics, and uh, and many of them are in uh, 
uh, have now faculty positions uh, in uh, uh, some in Israel, but uh, but also in uh, in other in NYU, in uh, ETH, uh, in in some uh, uh, in some other places, and uh, and it's really uh, uh, great uh, to see how uh, how they develop and uh, and. And as we said, it's great to see afterwards academic uh, grandchildren, that, uh, great grandchildren, and great great. Uh, <laughs> and can continue, I think, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, so that, that, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah so, uh, and uh, one question. So, uh, for example, uh, like uh, I think that is like for my students. Actually, they all have my cell phone, and they are. I mean, we talk as I mentioned. Sometimes we are. Talk at the middle of, I don't call them after 9 p.m. But if they are, I will send an email so there's a conference. Call me if you are a vegan. We may talk actually after midnight even. So, but what do you do? So are, are you having this regular meeting? Uh, I mean, with the students or some of them they have your cell phone and you are uh, even extended right. hours, you will work with them. And... So I think, I mean, they have my cell phone, but but we communicate uh, more by emails and by phone. So, phone is on the phone. And we try, we try to meet uh, uh, once uh, every uh, week or every two weeks, uh, even if nothing is going on, but just to, to kind of hear uh, what's. Yeah. Uh, but, but but of course, when there is a project that uh, uh, that is already developing, then uh, then often we meet more. So uh, as we. Uh, and then you know sometimes we we go to lunch here together, or uh, and of course we meet in the in the seminars here. Uh, but, uh, but but I try to meet uh, uh, once uh, at least once every two weeks, even if uh, not if much project, nothing is uh, is going on, uh, right? Uh, great and uh, yeah, so that uh, uh, it, so are you meeting them on Zoom? I think you like personal meeting this day. <laughs> yeah, I prefer personal meetings, but of course uh, now because uh, because of COVID and uh, and also because sometimes I travel and uh, uh, and uh, I spend some time away, then uh, then we meet uh, we meet in Zoom uh, also. But uh, I, I think that one thing that changed with COVID is that we all uh, do learn more to use. Uh, by Zoom, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So I think learn to do it. Like, and I, I think that is actually interesting. We will call Zoom, but I mean, of course, there is a Google Meet and uh, Teams and other, but none of them actually become so good as Zoom, especially because I think they were much better, uh, like ahead uh, of Zoom. But like some of the things that Zoom prepared, like this thing that you give a link and this person just click the link and works. Like for example, with Microsoft Teams, it's not at all like it. You need to log in into your <laughs> things if, if you get in your mobile or your, or your cell phone essentially. And some of the things that they had is like, I think we discussed that you can draw something on the, when you're presenting something. These are something that Zoom really actually helped in that sense. Like you should give the credit for that yeah, thing. Right. And it's much easier. Yeah, but still, I, I definitely prefer to meet in person, in person uh, when, for, when, we, when we can. Right? Uh, for the students. Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the interesting things uh, that I actually we had one question also on that one is that like uh, uh, how many hours per day you are working? So just before uh, I mean, answering that, I just want to give one other uh, example of that. I, I think it was like, I don't know, a few years ago, I wanted uh, 
I wanted, I sent them some people to get some letters from them. And it was interesting. So for the others, I mean, I sent an email to Noga and then uh, like one day I didn't get the answer. So maybe he didn't get the email. The next day, actually, uh, I expected that maybe say, okay, I will write the letter or this one, it will come. And then the day after he actually sent me, sent me the actual letter. So that was the like the speed of the thing that he was working. And I think this is something, I don't know, uh, how, uh, like these are some people actually I was talking that know you. And they mentioned that, I mean, while uh, we are reading a paper, no guy is actually doing a paper. It's not essentially doing it. But I, I think that is like, uh, I just want to say, I mean, some sort of the way, but I think it is important. I mean, like, like the people, uh, no, I mean, this is like even for higher schools or others, essentially, or like PhD students. So uh, how much did you work when you were PhD students now or like in the middle? So how many hours or something like this, if you want, you can share that. Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I like uh, this legend uh, that uh, sometimes are not completely accurate. But, uh, yeah, sure, I mean, I just, I mean, that is, I think, as I mentioned, a nice story. Yeah. But, but I, I work in the lot, so, uh, uh, so I always did, and, uh, and, uh, and also now, so uh, assuming that everything counts as work, right, uh, answering email and, uh, and thinking yeah. that, uh, so maybe even now uh, at least uh, 10 hours a day and probably also uh, some uh, some hours during the weekend and uh, and in fact as you know about us so even when we are not working we are actually working right because when exactly. we are walking somewhere we we are also thinking and uh, yeah, that's the thing that I mentioned. So several great children that I have proved actually there were the one that I was sleeping at night. In the morning, I came with some right. idea that that idea essentially eventually turned out into actually for my PhD that happened for some of the one of the most complicated one actually it was exactly like that. And uh, and in some sense, I will mention to PhD students that if you don't sleep with the problem, you may not be able to solve important problem. Maybe yeah, some smaller problem you can solve, but you really wanted to solve the problem you really need to sleep that that one in your mind and your mind should work essentially during the night uh, so that's yes, I, I agree it happens and uh, and you know and sometimes it's important to kind of change the state of mind because if you are thinking about the problem for a long time unless you think about it in kind of different scenarios different environments you you will keep having the same idea again and again, and you already check that it doesn't work. So sometimes it's important indeed to go to somewhere else or to think about it just before you go to sleep uh, and, and to have uh, some, some different uh, environment. And uh, this will sometimes help you to, uh, to, get, uh, uh, to get more ideas. It's also helpful to discuss it with uh, other with other people, or maybe to read uh, something that is uh, that is relevant. Uh, but, uh, but but indeed, I think that in some sense we are kind of working uh, uh, a lot of hours uh, always, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's like one of the things that you know, it'd be good or bad. I mean, to be scientists, because like for me, essentially, like weekends also don't mean that much, unfortunately. Sure. Because I have children that I need to take care of them. But in thanks to my wife, she's taking some of the burden of that. I have I mean, more time for doing this. And one other question I think that might be also useful uh, 
for uh, others. So how do you do the trade-off between emails and administrative stuff versus thinking and writing? Because that's, these are exactly two things that they are exactly against right. yeah. each other and kill each other. I think it's both ways, actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I I don't think I'm very good in this. I mean, it's uh, because I uh, usually I just get nervous when there are lots of email messages waiting, yeah. and I know that I didn't uh, do anything about it. So I feel uh, so. I definitely spend uh, too much time in email, and I never manage to convince myself to uh, maybe some people do it. You know, to to read email only twice a day or three times a day yeah. or something I, I just keep uh, uh, keep doing it and uh, and sometimes it's not so good so you definitely need uh, some time uh, to uh, to just think uh, so to live uh, and uh, uh, and the same with administration I mean the trouble is that uh, administrative duties usually have deadlines uh, so so you have to do them, eh? whereas to uh, think about a problem, you know, at least theoretically, it can always uh, wait. Uh, and the danger is that you will find yourself uh, only writing letters and doing uh, committee work and uh, and whatever. So you, you somehow have to force yourself uh, to, uh, uh, to take some time uh, uh, off even when you have all these uh, urgent administrative duties and uh, and I don't have a very good uh, answer for that. So, so you know, I, I was uh, uh, many years ago, maybe in 2000, I, I was for a, 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 for about two years, I was a chairman in Tel Aviv. Uh, that was still, uh, at that time, mathematics and computer science were together. In fact, uh, one of my main duties was to separate uh, the School of Mathematics from the School of Computer Science at that time. But uh, anyway, so, so then what I tried, I had the chairman office and I had my usual office. And I tried to spend the morning in the chairman office doing administrative things and then to go upstairs to my, uh, to my own office and to work on, uh, on research. And then I found out that, uh, that I spent more and more time in the chairman office and uh, in less and less in my own because, because there are always there are these things that you kind of must uh, do. So, uh, uh, so I, I always tried my best, but I don't have a very uh, good uh, method of, uh, uh, of how do you really force yourself to split the time in an ideal way between administration and, uh, and kind of uh, research. And, uh, uh, but we, we all do uh, what, uh, what we can, I mean. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I mean, we have I mean, added this thing, I think for PhD advising or like administrative, I think these are all the way that I think you work. I think that would be useful because I think we have some statistics also I mean, from the, I mean, uh, people who are well known in the field and 
work hard. So what should be the correct thing to, like for PhD students or like assistant professor, et cetera? I think these are good questions and I don't have, I mean, the answer for them because for me also, I try to answer the things some, with some other professor actually, something like 3 a.m. we are sending emails back and forth. And uh, this is like, and I feel that, oh, this is this email that I need to answer. I feel bad if I don't answer it and I may forget it forever. So I try to answer it, but generally that's as you mentioned, it's a stress essentially in my mind that, okay, I need to answer these things. Otherwise it can take forever to answer. Or I may forget actually to send a particular email which is important to send. Uh, great. So, uh, good. So, if there's, uh, I mean, anything else you want to say about your graduate students or PhD that's, I mean, you can just mention, or where then we can go actually to do more research stuff and talk a little bit about the research stuff. Uh, yeah, we can. Uh, yeah, we we can speak about uh, about research. Uh, maybe maybe there is uh, one one funny story that I wanted to tell. It's not as a graduate student, but uh, as a young uh, assistant professor, maybe in. Uh, so something, it's just a strange story. I don't know if there is any moral to it, but I think it's nice, so let me tell it. Uh, so I was, I was already, at that time I was, it was after my postdoc, I was back in Tel Aviv. And, uh, and I was running to uh, some colloquium lecture, I think, uh, maybe it was a computer science colloquium, I don't remember. And on the way in the corridor, I met uh, Amos Fiat. So yeah. he's also a, non-computer scientist, and he just got a book of, uh, uh, of uh, open problems in number theory, a book by uh, Richard Guy. I think he got it from Adi Shamir, who was his advisor, I think, that he just, but, but anyway, so, so he just showed me this book. I said that, so it's a book of open problems. I said that I'm in hurry, let's just open it. I opened it. I tried to look for a problem that would be easy to read, so short problem. And I saw there's some problem of Erdős and Perdi. It's in a, uh, combinatorial geometry. And I went to this uh, lecture of the colloquium. And, uh, and during the lecture, I, uh, I thought about it. And more or less, you know, sometimes it happens. I, I kind of had the right idea. And basically, I knew to solve it uh, by the end of the lecture. I mean, it took a few weeks afterwards to, uh, to kind of check all details. Yeah. Basically, it was a, and I have a paper. It appeared uh, in this uh, uh, geometric and function analysis in some, uh, uh, but then uh, I, so I showed it to Amos and, uh, and I told him, let me take the book and look at it because you know, this shows that uh, a random problem I can solve immediately. So probably I'd be able to solve uh, half the problems of the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I looked, uh, so I looked at the book, I went over the problems one by one and uh, kind of thinking about all of them. I had no idea about any of the problems. So somehow miraculously, the first one that I looked at was the one I could do and I had no idea about any other thing. So as I said, I don't know if there is any moral here, but it's a true story and it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting, but I still uh, don't have a good explanation of uh, yeah. what exactly happened. Yeah, I think when, uh, essentially, I mean, I think that is exactly the point about having a paper is not just, I mean, uh, 
just I mean you may work hard on a problem but you don't have a paper essentially especially if it's like is an important problem you need to have the right idea at the right time and you see the right problem like I think they say maybe having the right problem is 50 percent of the whole thing because in some sense uh, by definition I mean uh, right problem is the one that you can solve it otherwise you cannot solve it and that's yeah. like it but yeah uh, great so uh, great so i think uh, let's uh, go i think uh, i want to start with uh, this work about the uh, streaming algorithm that you actually uh, got this uh, acm uh, uh, paris uh, kanalakis award and uh, which that is essentially for the papers that have theory papers that have practical um, implications as well as uh, i think the godel prize in 2005 so uh, and i just start by saying a little bit about uh, streaming algorithms i think from also some of the things that I have seen in the industry. So in general, like this is one of the most important, two important areas of um, big data processing nowadays. There is one, it is like parallel algorithm nowadays is known more as the MapReduce, I mean, Spark and other. These are some of the things that if you even go interview, I mean, the different uh, companies, they will ask questions about it. So it is so <laughs> things. And uh, and this is like, a, we will call it a massive parallel computation model that you are doing in this parallel computer. The other one is the streaming algorithm that you have lots of big data. You can think about blockchain or other things that you get the data all over the time. And then uh, the question is that when these problems come all over the time, uh, and like the data is coming all over the time and you don't have a space actually to save everything. But even if you have a space, you don't have time to process that because it would be very, I mean, expensive in terms of compute cost. And the question is that when this data essentially fly in and they are just fly out in some sense, from this, you want to compute some sketch and get some statistics or, I mean, some solutions. I mean, it's more than a statistics, actually. Solve the problem that if the whole graph is given to you, that was the solution. Now you get something, okay, you may lose a little bit in terms of approximation factor, etc. but still you have a good uh, uh, solution. One particular thing of interest are routers, for example. Lots of routers, when I was actually at AT&T, that was the case that this router, they needed to compute some statistics and others, and they don't have generally that much memory. So they need to have a very simple algorithm, I will say. And that's also something that makes this model, it is called a streaming algorithm, very nice and interesting because you need to really have simple algorithm to do with that. And this is uh, not a trivial thing to do, because always designing nice, I mean, efficient algorithms which are simple is not that easy. Uh, great. So with this introduction, I want to say actually one of the, uh, this paper that I have mentioned, that's one of the papers of uh, Nogas that introduced uh, this one uh, with uh, uh, UC Matthias and Mario Sezecki. And uh, uh, here, I mean, that's, he got actually this award. So you want to, I mean, talk a little bit about the algorithm there, the model, etc. How did you come to yeah. this one? What was the motivation before that? And then we can go up. Uh, good. Yeah, let me just say that indeed the initial uh, uh, paper was with uh, Yossi Matthias and Mario Segeti uh, when we, we met in Bell Labs. Uh, uh, but, but then there are uh, uh, follow-up uh, works uh, with also with uh, Phil Gibbons from uh, uh, from CMU, and uh, uh, and the uh, Gedel Prize was with Matthias and Segedi, and the Kanellakis was together with Gibbons uh, also. Mm -hmm. So that was about uh, 
Now, as you, uh, as you described correctly, the main question is what kind of statistical properties you can uh, compute, estimate about a, a, a huge stream of data that you get on the fly under space constraints. So you don't have too much space and you want and you don't want to spend too much time. So you get this stream of data it comes and goes, you just uh, want to do some simple things uh, for, a, a, for any uh, data item. And afterwards you, you want to, uh, uh, to know some uh, property of it. And, uh, and the question is what things uh, you can compute and what not. Uh, now there were some things uh, also before our paper, maybe the first one was by Maurice, so he knew that you can do approximate counting. Uh, and for approximate counting, log log n bits uh, is in, uh, are enough to count approximately numbers up to n instead of log n bits. But this is really interesting. So, uh, uh, sorry, just uh, interrupt you. So uh, uh, can you maybe define that counting one in maybe a simpler word such that I mean that people can get some right. idea so about it? Right, counting uh, means, let's say, that uh, I, I get uh, items coming one by one, and I only want to count how many of them arrived. So whenever I, I keep somehow a counter, and then whenever uh, another item arrives, uh, then I want to add to add one. And of course, if I have log n bits, I it's, can just count. Yeah, exactly. And this is fine. But he showed, and, and, and what he showed is that if you only want to count probabilistically, and this was already in the late 70s, I think, if you only want to count probabilistically and to have with high probability a good estimate of the number of items that came, then it's enough to have log log n bits. And there is a very simple algorithm. But you see, the thing about that is that it's obviously only a theoretical result because in practice, who cares between, I mean, log n is very small. Even if they, I don't know, you get the, all the atoms of the universe as, a, as items that come, then a, a maybe the log of it uh, will be several hundreds. So, so there is no problem to have some uh, several hundreds and therefore to change log to log log is not, uh, I mean, it's interesting theoretically, but it's not, uh, but maybe it's more interesting to uh, try to look at more complicated uh, properties of a stream uh, that is coming on the fly and to, uh, to check what you uh, can uh, compute. And we were thinking uh, specifically about frequency moments, but, uh, but maybe uh, one uh, good way to explain it. Suppose you get this uh, uh, stream of data that is coming uh, and we can think about it uh, that you just get uh, numbers that are coming one after the other. Every number is a big number. Uh, Maybe it can be an IP address of some, something in the internet. Uh, so maybe it's a number of, uh, I don't know, uh, 40, 50 bits. And they come and they go, and there are many of them. And suppose you want to estimate, for example, uh, you want to know if some number appeared twice. 
is it true that all of them are distinct or someone appeared twice? <coughs> or suppose you want to approximate the number of pairs uh, that appeared uh, that are equal to each other. Or, okay, so things like that. And, uh, uh, and we, we thought that it's an interesting model. I think that at that time, so this was in the late nineties, uh, it was still not clear how practical. So, you know, the uh, big data only just started. We didn't know that there will be such huge amounts of data that you, you would have to process, uh, but still it looked interesting. And surprisingly, what we realized is that there are some things that you can compute with very little space <laughs> and some things that you cannot. Uh, and uh, uh, in the examples that I said, uh, if, for example, you want to know if there is some numbers that appeared twice, then you can show that you cannot do much better than just to remember everything. I mean, of course, you can. Uh, you can store a table of all the numbers that appeared, uh, maybe as a hash table, but still you would need lot, lots and lots of memory. And then whenever someone uh, else is coming, you check if it appeared before or not. But this requires a lot of memory. And it turns out that using some known results in communication complexity, you can show that you cannot do much better. Now, we also realize that in general, for basically any interesting task, you will not be able to compute things exactly, but you have to do some approximation. And also, you will not be able to do things deterministically. You need to have randomized algorithms. Uh, so you need to uh, just be OK with high probability. But then the surprise was, so we found some basically pretty simple, but, uh, but not trivial maybe algorithm that will count the second frequency moment. So basically it will approximate how many pairs of items of numbers appear that are equal to each other. So for this, you have to, uh, you have to do something uh, randomly and we use some uh, uh, random projection and uh, maybe four wise uh, independent random variables. So I'm just saying the relevant buzzwords and, uh, and it turned out that this uh, uh, would, uh, uh, you could show that with a, a memory, amount of memory that is only logarithmic in the amount of data or the range of the numbers that appear you are able with high probability to get a good estimate of, a, of this, of the number of pairs of items that are equal to each other. On the other hand, for some things that uh, look pretty similar, so suppose you want to estimate how many, I don't know, four tuples of numbers there are that are equal to each other. I want to know, uh, so this would correspond to the fourth frequency moment, then this you cannot do in logarithmic space. You need space that already grows like a power of, a, of the range of the numbers that can appear. So some things that look pretty similar to each other, some are possible under space constraints and some are impossible. 
And this was quite exciting for us. And it used the, uh, so like the positive results uh, used uh, uh, some sort of randomized uh, projections and uh, it's related uh, to, uh, uh, to some uh, uh, geometric ideas. Uh, and the negative or the lower bound results use the ideas from communication complexity. And uh, both of those uh, turned out uh, uh, to be very influential in the sense that uh, uh, so uh, soon after that, uh, really uh, this area of streaming algorithms uh, became an active area and uh, with lots of ideas by many clever people. Uh, that uh, were uh, extending what we did and uh, generalizing and uh, doing some other things, uh, both for upper bounds with clever algorithms and for lower bounds with uh, techniques mostly from communication complexity. And the nice thing that, uh, that kind of uh, the basic uh, approaches, uh, I think, appeared in what we, we did already at the beginning. So both these, uh, randomized uh, projections and the connection to communication complexity. And the fact that uh, it uh, uh, later uh, turned out to, to be uh, really uh, practical. So, uh, so you can monitor traffic in the internet, you can, uh, even at that time, so, so as I said, uh, uh, we were, uh, I was visiting Bell Labs and uh, and maybe both uh, Yossi, Matthias, and Mario Segedi uh, were, uh, were actually uh, uh, working in Bell Labs at that time. So, so we, uh, we made a patent of, uh, of this uh, basic thing, and it was implemented in some software that supposedly was used by Walmart. I, I never checked how, uh, how practical this originally thing was, but, uh, but I think uh, uh, in general, definitely the, the area uh, became practical. And it's always nice, uh, I mean, although I, I view myself as a theoretician, but, uh, but it's always nice uh, when it kind of turns out that, uh, that something uh, uh, that you've done is really, uh, is really useful and, uh, and it's uh, uh, and this uh, this was the case with uh, this thing, and uh, and I think it really uh, became a, uh, became an active area. So uh, so we also uh, from time to time, I'm, I'm still working on streaming, but uh, but definitely there are lots of uh, of many uh, clever and uh, younger people who were doing uh, and are still doing uh, some uh, great things about. Uh, about this area, whereas the main thing is that, uh, as you described at the beginning, what kind of properties you can uh, you can compute or approximate efficiently under space constraints on the fly, and it's still not completely clear uh, what is the situation with. Uh, I mean, sometimes there are several tasks that look very similar to each other. And one of them you can solve efficiently with very little space, and the other you can show that it's possible. Uh, and it will be interesting to understand uh, uh, to understand better uh, uh, what uh, what are the things that can be done and what are the things that uh, cannot. Uh, 
great. I think <laughs> great explanations. I just want to add a few things, up, especially because I'm working on both these models of uh, like uh, big graphs or big data things about MapReduce and streaming algorithms. So I think a few things that I think that you mentioned, I just want to say summary on that thing. So in some sense, like the idea generally, I think you want to have ideas that there is some data of size N is coming, say. Uh, of course, I mean, uh, so the, the memory that we generally would like for these type of things, I mean, to have memory of login because like somehow exponentially smaller than that. Of course, we can go as Noga mentioned for, from login to log login for some problems, but maybe actually going from, and it is also exponentially down, but maybe from N to login is the most important problem. I think uh, this paper that Noga had about uh, uh, like uh, several problems, like uh, as, uh, he mentioned, like finding like heavy hitters, like the person who is coming the most or several other versions of metrics or, uh, norms, et cetera, that we can compute it. Another interesting one actually about the graph problem. So that also the people consider it under the name semi-streaming. The semi-streaming is that the, the graph typically can have a dense graph can have if n vertices it has, it can have n to the two edges. And then the question is that can we do this uh, like from n square to n, the space that we have. That was a semi-streaming. Uh, model and by the way, when we talk n, we always we may have n log n and on n polylog. As I mentioned, polylog is the acceptable things that we can have. Uh, I think we had actually this uh, problem. I think probably we are we were the first actually we could get for one uh, non-trivial problem. We could solve the degree of find the degree of vertices or something less than uh, things. But for example, for matching in planar graphs or somehow a sparse graph, actually we could get something sublinear. That was, and I think later had been improved actually to log in and there are several works there. So these are very nice problem. And I worked actually with a master's student at that time for several trivial problems, you couldn't do anything better than N. But then when you try to approximate something in this graph and actually you could do better. So there are very nice set of problems here. And also I want to add one thing about the practicality. I mean, how practical is that? So this was some story. I mean, like the past few years, I'm doing it more. Uh, also, I mean, from the say technical stuff, and I mean, maybe uh, more system things as well. I actually loved it because if you have the theory and you will go there, sometime I mean, we need some other people to say what are the applications. But if you go and understand the application, actually, and I think it needs a little bit of hacking, programming, etc. As well, but actually, you may enjoy because this idea that you had it now, you can actually do it better than practitioners. So one that I was reading actually recently that was. Google actually, they had this thing they will call it, I mean, very secure system, and they sell it to different companies. It happens that for, I think this is exactly the application of the problem that you mentioned, that for one company, it was like that. Some hackers, they want to hack it. The way that they try to do that is that using different IPs, I think like 5,000 IPs or something, and sending requests from different places to this website. And that was, and that is interesting. If you allow that this traffic comes inside, then it essentially crashes your system. And if it is in Google Cloud, it may actually have effect on the Google as well. The issue is exactly the one that you mentioned. You want to have very, I mean, like, and so like you want to have routers or very resource restricted things at the edge, such that they will find this type of attacks and probably report it or the one way actually that they were doing very nicely so that 
this was for this particular company. They were sending, I think, I don't know, the amount of traffic that you will get in a big company in one week in like, I will say less than an hour. And it was horrible. But the way that they done it, it was very nice because they could first understood it very well with a very restricted memory that this is a bad type of data. They reported, and this is the typical thing that they are doing. I think they are throttling it. Throttling it means randomizing drop, and like essentially uh, randomly drop it. So they randomly drop this one. Even these guys didn't, I mean, they, some of their things still went through. And uh, they have for one hour, I mean, having such an attack generally is very costly. They say, oh, nothing happened essentially. Only their things became slow and they went away. But uh, you see, these are nice theory work that when you put it in the right place, I mean, can actually catch such things because, I mean, because of this efficient algorithm. And that's actually beauty of this. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is against uh, the denial of service attacks. Uh, so some, uh, uh, some particular uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So indeed, uh, I think it's nice when uh, uh, when theory uh, work uh, turned out to be uh, uh, to be practical. Uh, I mean, you can uh, if there are you know like great examples like uh, uh, RSA crypto system or or lempeziv compression schemes uh, so these things if they wouldn't have uh, the application they would be kind of nice but uh, but just nice but uh, but once they have this uh, application they are really great uh, they are really changing uh, uh, changing the world uh, so uh, uh, so that's why I'm mentioning uh, RSA and Limpelsif, which are uh, uh, which are really uh, uh, things that are uh, that are very influential in uh, in practical applications, and uh, uh, and uh, and streaming is uh, uh, is also practical. Uh, uh, probably its impact uh, is not uh, is not like uh, one of these uh, two things, but uh, but uh, but it's still uh, significant. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one other thing I wanted to tell about uh, 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 Noga in that sense, actually, but I mean, I, when I talk with him and work with him, and when you mention a nice a problem, I think he appreciates the problem, and I think that is important. Maybe some people say, oh, this problem is maybe it's not, I mean, it's my area, or maybe it's just not, I mean, I don't know what would be the prospect picked off that, whether it gets in the top conference or not. I mean, I think at some point, actually, it might be better to just think about these problems if you can solve them, because you never know which one of these work actually may come essentially the very practical one. And that's, I think that's important to me. I think that's the style that I looked at. Do you want to add anything on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's very important. So I think to maintain uh, curiosity is very important. And, uh, and indeed, it is true that often we don't know uh, to begin with uh, when we hear a problem. We, it's hard to estimate if it will be important, whatever that means, or not. And important does not necessarily mean practical applications, but for example, Maybe it will lead to to some uh, a new important insight. It will lead to a development of an area, or a, so. I think it's indeed uh, very desirable to a uh, to kind of a uh, uh, look at, uh, at problems and uh, and stay curious about them. Uh, 
and give them a chance uh, even uh, even when it's not. I mean, sometimes uh, at the first look, uh, they may look a little bit uh, artificial, but uh, but it turns out that uh, uh, that this is uh, not the case. And uh, and actually, something that you often uh, you know that Erdes used to ask lots and lots of questions, uh, mainly in combinatorics, but also in number theory in some. Uh, and from time to time, you would hear from him, and, and he had a very good uh, uh, intuition of what problems are interesting. And from time to time, it happened to me, and I know that uh, several other people told me that they had the same impression, that you would hear a problem from him, and you would tell yourself that this is really, this is really not interesting. I mean, it looks, uh, and more often, and of course, maybe sometimes it was not, but more often than not, it turned out that really, after you think about it, it turned out to be somehow the right problem. So although it looked a little bit artificial, it led to something else. It was a special case of something. It was, uh, and, uh, and this is uh, the case with many, uh, with many questions. So, uh, so I think it's nice to, uh, to stay curious and, uh, and to give uh, problems a chance. And, and I think this is more or less what you said. Uh, great. Yeah, so actually, by the way, so I just mentioned that we are live, we are global, we are on every medium almost, I mean, like YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Uh, I, some of the questions that some of you asked in different, I mean, especially LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, these are the best way to ask questions. I mean, you can ask some of them you asked already answered, but uh, uh, I mean, or ask uh, Noga some of them, but please ask more questions as well. Uh, great. So uh, I think we will uh, talk about the next thing. So we talk about the big data, we talk about the streaming, and I mentioned there's another one about the parallel algorithms. And that's the way essentially we are getting the big data. So in some sense in the streaming, we have one data, one computer, your own laptop actually be even motivated and you want to solve some problem. You may read from the hard disk, that's another kind of a streaming algorithm or your cell phone. The other way is that of course we are using cloud and we have parallel algorithm. And I think if we come to this other uh, paper that you had about the uh, fast and simple randomized algorithm for maximal independence set problem. I think the maximal independence set problem is that you have a graph, a set of nodes and vertices, a very faint, like, important problem. You find maximum number of vertices that they don't have any edges in between, or you can consider the complements. You want to find a set of vertices that they have all edges in between. So these are clique versus uh, independence. And now you want to find a maximal version. So here you don't want to find the maximum one. You just want to find one that you cannot add one more edge to it. It seems actually easier. It's a polynomial time problem to find the maximal one. But here we talk about parallel algorithms and you want to do it faster. So you want, don't want to do it, say, linear in N again, you want to do polylogarithmic or something faster. So yeah, so I think this uh, work of uh, Noga with uh, uh, Lassi Babai and uh, Alan Itai actually got a Dijkstra prize. So you may want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, yeah, so, so let's also say that uh, Mike Ruby independently came with essentially the same result yeah. that he did uh, with that. Uh, uh, so, uh, so the problem is indeed uh, what you mentioned and, uh, and the thing was to find a, 
a parallel algorithm that solves the problem in a logarithmic number of rounds. And, and it turned out that there was a, a relatively a simple and, a, and elegant algorithm. And let me also mention that in the same paper, it kind of led us, because the original algorithm was randomized, but then we wanted to de-randomize it, to convert it to a deterministic algorithm. And for that, you had to use the notion of small sample spaces supporting the k-wise independent random variables. So small sample spaces in which we have random variables so that every two or every four of them are independent. And, uh, and that also uh, turned out to be something that is uh, useful for other algorithms. Uh, but I want to mention uh, another thing that is related to this, uh, uh, to this paper. So, so this came as a follow-up result that uh, uh, we wrote uh, uh, much later, maybe uh, uh, sometime in uh, 2010, maybe, with a, a, with a group uh, uh, that uh, work also in uh, biology and also in distributed computing. And this is a paper that uh, appeared in uh, science. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it's again, so it's the following. Uh, so the motivation there came from something that happens in the development of the nervous system of the fruit fly. And apparently, uh, when this happens, then some cells have to decide if they want to uh, take some special role or if they just want to be simple. I mean, I'm kind of simplifying it, uh, yeah. and actually, because uh, uh, I'm not even very familiar with the exact uh, biological details. But, uh, but it turned out that basically what had to be solved there by the nervous system is to find a maximal independent set in some graph because, uh, because these are these uh, uh, cells that choose to have this special role. And, uh, and somehow uh, our impression was in the kind of the biological experiment supported is that these cells during the development, they can do only very, very simple things. They cannot count, they cannot, uh, like even our algorithm uh, uh, in that paper uh, with Baba and Ditai, it was simple, but still it was counting degrees of vertices and was doing some things based on the degrees. And here the assumption was that the uh, biological network does not even know to count. So we considered only an algorithm that would solve the maximal independence set in parallel quickly but is allowed only to do very, very simple things. So maybe it's allowed to use randomization and it's allowed to only, we call it beep. So it's only allowed to send, to send or not send one bit to the neighbors every time. So it looks that with this, you cannot do much, but because we had the results from the, the older papers and the algorithm was simple enough, then it was possible to indeed modify it and get an algorithm that uh, maybe not in log time, but in log square time, finds uh, with high probability a maximal independent set. 
and it does only very, very simple basic operations. And somehow there were reasons to think that what the actual biology does, what actually is, is actually happening, is very similar to this simple algorithm. So I think that this, uh, and as I said, uh, there is this uh, science paper that describes it. And I think that one nice uh, thing about this paper is that uh, it kind of tells you that sometimes just by thinking about uh, biological systems, about what they can do, they can do only very simple things, then you will be able to find some new algorithms to interesting problems uh, because you are restricted by the kind of operations that the biology enables you to do. So there are also people that work on what they call the natural algorithms. So they try to understand how biological systems behave and, the, and to kind of understand it mathematically. Uh, but I think indeed the, uh, uh, one uh, thing that is uh, uh, nice about this specific paper, so definitely it was motivated by the thing in, uh, in the original paper uh, uh, about uh, uh, this maximal independent set, but it made it even simpler, allowing it only to use uh, some very, very basic operations and uh, and uh, uh, and this uh, has some advantages and maybe also explains uh, what is uh, uh, what is happening uh, really in this uh, uh, in this biological uh, system. <clears throat> Great, yeah. So uh, I think uh, to uh, just uh, uh, like uh, mention maybe the uh, algorithm. So uh, here, uh, like, let me ask actually first this question. So a loop is algorithm. So what it, I think that was login versus login to the two. I mean, how do you compare your results with Luby's algorithm? Well, I, I think both of them were uh, uh, were log in uh, uh, basically the number of steps, the time was logarithmic. Uh, and then maybe in parallel algorithms, uh, you care also about the number of processors. And uh, so they were very similar. And basically, the basic approach was that uh, everybody looks at its degree yes. and chooses itself to the independent set with a probability that is proportional to one over the degree. And then uh, if uh, we have some collisions, so some two adjacent vertices decide to choose themselves, uh, then they both go out the dependent set. Uh, and this is like one round. Uh, and after this round, you, you take uh, these resulting vertices to the uh, independent set that you are constructing. Uh, you remove all their neighbors and you keep going. And the trick is to, uh, to do some analysis. Uh, now it's described uh, as, uh, as a randomized algorithm and to show that in expectation, the total size of the graph decreases by a constant factor in every step. And therefore you will finish after a logarithmic number of steps. Uh, and then there is this issue of making it deterministically, a deterministic algorithm because you only need the random choices to be pairwise independent because somehow what happens uh, for a vertex and uh, 
and some, I mean, because edges is only two ends. So you care only about pairwise independence and, uh, and uh, you can use these small sample spaces uh, with uh, uh, supporting on this. Uh, very yeah, great. Actually, I want to just mention that I mentioned the algorithm that you already mentioned. I think that you mentioned just a summary, essentially. You want to find a set of vertices that no one has an edge and at the same time, between each other and we cannot add one more vertex. This, this maximality is the important things actually that uh, uh, it is important here and make it nice. So the, the thing is that I mean, each vertex as Noga mentioned, I mean, according to some one over degree decide to be in the independent set, if there is a collision, both of these guys go out, we have some independent set and some, the current thing is independent, set, but it's not maximal. I think that's a catch. And then the, the issue that, okay, this guy, we will select it in your solution and say, okay, remove their neighbors because the neighbors cannot be the independence. Then we need to repeat this process. And we need, I think the interesting thing would be here to repeat and say, how many rounds do you need such that you can actually uh, have a maximal independence? Because until you are not done with the graph, you don't have a maximal independence. Still, you might be able to have one more vertex and you'll be maximal independence. So that, number of rounds would be important. Actually, we have, we were doing I mean, similar thing for the matching when you consider essentially maximal matching. We had it recently. I mean, that was, the, uh, I think a few, two, three years ago, that was we are doing in parallel. That's also, these are, this maximality, actually these are important things and can be actually complicated algorithm. We, we do it log login, but in this massive parallel models. And I think for your case, I think that would be a login in this uh, uh, like, Maybe there is a bit, little bit different between the regular parallel and the massively parallel model because there we have computers that they have more power essential. Okay. Uh, great. So I think now it was maybe the good uh, things also to, you mentioned about this, uh, one interesting thing about this, that this, uh, and the one beauty of this algorithm is that each one decides globally to be in an independent set, which is a global solution, by just seeing essentially its, its local neighbors and decide whether it wants to be there or not. And, and I think this is also some important, this kind of local algorithms are important uh, algorithm in property testing. That's another thing that you are actually working. So you may want to add a little bit more on that things that now we are here. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. So it's indeed uh, very interesting uh, uh, to decide. Uh, so for algorithms, uh, uh, these are local algorithms where everybody has to decide what to do based only on its local neighborhood and still you want to get some global uh, structure. And, uh, uh, and in property testing, uh, uh, it's uh, you want maybe to understand uh, some global property of a structure that can be a big graph, for example, by looking locally at very small part of it. And, uh, and you want to understand what properties you can uh, uh, you can deduce by looking at only a very small part, and uh, what properties you cannot. And uh, and it's quite surprising that uh, uh, that there are quite uh, a few things that uh, that you can uh, uh, deduce about uh, about the uh, global nature of a. Uh, of a graph uh, by looking at uh, a very small part of it uh, chosen uh, randomly. 
So, uh, so this was a, a, in the graph model, uh, it was a, a, a initi initiated by a, a Goldreich, a, a Goldwasser and, uh, and Ron, and, uh, and maybe before it uh, in general by uh, Sudan and Rubinfeld. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and it turned out uh, to be uh, closely related to some very basic result in a, uh, in a graph theory, which is called Semeredi's regularity lemma, which tells us something about uh, the structure of a general graph. And, uh, uh, and using uh, this type of connection, uh, it was possible to, uh, uh, to kind of uh, characterize all the properties of graphs that can be what is called tested in the dense graph model. Now to formulate everything here uh, exactly, we have to define what exactly we mean. Uh, so, so there is a, a one notion that is needed is a, the a distance between a graph and the property. And uh, we say that the graph is epsilon far from satisfying some property if we have to change an epsilon fraction of the description of the graph in order to get the graph satisfying the property. And the objective in property testing is to distinguish between graphs that are epsilon far from satisfying a property and graphs that satisfy the property. Because since you allow yourself only to look at a very small local part of the graph, you will not be able to see if the graph does not satisfy the property only because of some small number of edge somewhere of edges somewhere, right? Because we are not looking at all of it. But uh, surprisingly, it uh, uh, turned out that uh, uh, that in fact. Uh, every hereditary property. So uh, there is a huge number of properties of graphs, uh, almost every natural property Which is hereditary. That, that you can distinguish between a graph that satisfies it and a graph that is somewhat far from satisfying it. Uh, you have to uh, delete a, a, or you have to change an epsilon fraction of the representation in order to get something that satisfies it by looking at a kind of a constant part of the graph, a constant that depends only on this proximity parameter epsilon. So, so maybe just to give a specific example, suppose I give you this huge graph, so a large graph and uh, the only allowed operation uh, we're allowed to do is to query if vertex number million and two is connected or not connected to vertex number 10 million. And we can ask uh, some queries like that. And what we want at the end is to know if uh, with high probability, let's say, to distinguish between the case that the graph is three colorable, namely we can color the vertices by three colors with no two ends of the same age of the same color. Or uh, the uh, alternative is that we have to delete at least uh, n square over a million edges uh, to, uh, to make the graph free colorable. Okay, so these are, uh, 
And the surprising thing is that uh, this can be done by an algorithm that makes only a constant number of queries independent of the size of the graph. So the constant will depend on these parameters, uh, one over a million that I mentioned. And, uh, but, uh, uh, and this is, although the property of being three colorable is, uh, uh, is NPR. So in fact, uh, we had in one of the papers, uh, uh, we had uh, uh, later, uh, this was about some sort of approximation algorithm. Uh, so suppose you give me any monotone graph property that you want. So a property is monotone if uh, whenever a graph satisfies a property, then so is every subgraph of it. Okay. So for example, being three colorable is monotone because if you delete edges and you are three colorable, you stay three colorable. Yeah, so if you, I think the three colorable is that I mean coloring essentially you want to color the set of vertices such as any two vertices that have an edge have a different color. And yes. like three colorable is that with three color we can do that. And of course, if the whole graph you can do it with three color, if you delete some of the edges, still you can do it for three right. color. Yeah, so, so this is an example of a monotone property, but there are really lots and lots of examples of monotone properties. And suppose I give you this a, a very, very big graph, and your objective is to estimate or to compute the number of edges you have to delete in order to get a graph that satisfies the property. For example, the number of edges you have to delete to make the graph free colorable. In particular, the number of edges you have to delete to make the graph too colorable is equivalent to the so-called max cut problem of the graph because this is a... And then the result is that if you only want to approximate the minimum number of edges, you have to delete up to an additive error of epsilon n square, then for every monotone property, no matter how complicated the property it is, you can do it efficiently. You can do it in linear time. And in fact, if you want to do it randomly, you can do it in constant time, only constant depending on this epsilon. And on the other end, if you want to approximate it, uh, not up to an additive error of epsilon n square, but up to an additive error of n to the two minus epsilon, that's already NP hard. So probably there is no efficient algorithm that, uh, that does it. But, but indeed it tells you that there are lots and lots of things that you can do very efficiently locally. Although I should say that the positive results there are completely non-practical because they use their base of these things that is called the regularity lemma. Yeah, so the dependence on epsilon is, uh, is completely terrible, but still for constant epsilon, it's a constant. Great. So yeah, I think that's actually, I wanted to add uh, something like as you mentioned, I mean, Nova had like over 600 conference and journal papers. So we cannot go through all of them. But I think as we have seen so far and I have seen some other works of him, I mean, that is actually, the, that is the beauty of, I mean, the way that, I mean, he's thinking about that. So we have a graph, I mean, like some structure, and generally, I mean, even in the streaming algorithm, we cannot see the whole graph. We want to see a little bit of this graph and of course, if we don't see the whole graph, then we may make a mistake. But you want to say that, okay, my or mistake somehow bonded, like in terms of like the, the probability of mistake is bonded. So for example, I think we were talking about the property testing that you may see actually just a constant number of places in the graph. 
And of course, randomness plays a very important thing in this probabilistic method. And the proof that why it works, that these are the non-trivial parts. Because the algorithm probably lots of people can say, but why does it work? That's a non-trivial part. But then you want to see a little bit of this and then distinguish, for example, the graph has this property or very far from this property. These are like some kind of property just. And these are very nice set of, I mean, work. I think the, I think the work of Noga, uh, uh, I forgot the second, uh, I think Asaf Shapiro was the, uh, and this was one of the, I mean, the latest one actually that put somehow the most general version of the previous works. I don't know, some other later work came after that, but that was one of the important one actually in the... Uh, right, yeah. So with Asaf, uh, what we showed is that every hereditary property is, uh, is testable. And then with him and Newman and Fisher, uh, we, we had this uh, basically characterization of all the things that uh, can be, that have a two-sided tester. But uh, yeah, so... So property testing for the dense model uh, of graphs, we we in some sense understand it, uh, understand it completely. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, but in sparse models, there are still uh, uh, some interesting problems that are uh, uh, great. Yeah, so I think, uh, so having said that, actually now I wanted to mention about another problem. I think that uh, actually uh, like this was the paper that I had in this. Uh, Bobby Kleinberg, Tom Layton, and I think Steve Butler about a hat guessing game. So this was the somehow this is a very I mean interesting game that the people have different version of that like it's a, like as a maybe a puzzle. Uh, and the question is that I mean there are some people they cannot see their hats, and you know that there are this number of hats in the. I think this is like make it also a bit less uh, more uh, like. Uh, puzzle version of this thing, then we will go again to some other research as well. And But here you can see from this problem that, okay, there are a set of people, they have a different height, they can see, some they can see the uh, hat of others, and you know that this number of hats exist in the, um, essentially in the room. And you cannot see your own hat, say. Uh, how can you essentially guess what is the color of your hat? And there are several, I mean, versions of uh, puzzles of this that uh, you may heard for two people, for two people, I think I can give you a simple example that there are two people like number, like person one and person two, and they can just see the hat of the other person, not themselves. And then the question that we know that there are, uh, it might be uh, essentially two colors at most. I mean, these two people, but these are the, you know that it is green and it can be green or red. And the question that you want to see the color of the other person, the other person's hat, and then you decide what is the color of your own hat. So it seems maybe at the beginning it's like too hard, but actually this is an interesting thing. So the question here is that you may not, again, we may not get everything exact, but you want to get some approximation uh, to the problem. For example, if there are two persons, two color, red and green, one strategy would be like this, that among these two persons, one of them just say the color of my hat is the same color of the other person. The other one, he said that my color is the reverse of that color. Interestingly, you can consider that whatever the color of this guy, at least one of these guys says the truth correctly. And this, you can generalize it more. I mean, you, make, you can make actually the graph version of that, that you have a graph and some people can see the other information. This actually, I mean, this, uh, there might be actually some interesting applications for that, that some people see some applications and they don't, some information of others and some other information that you don't see. And you want to make sure that in the worst case, 
I mean, a good fraction of these people or some number of these people actually make the current. Yes. So this is again, I might be wrong, but in total, we are getting a good thing. So actually, we just introduced we introduced the problem, and I think the result that we had, I mean, just several of them are not. I mean, that like I mean, some initial results. But I think uh, this is one of the things that I see actually Nogam worked on this as he had the, like some of the best uh, numbers that I'm enjoying reading the paper. So you want to say a little bit the state of the art. I think I checked some of the papers, but I don't know what is the current state of the art actually now. Yeah, so I, yeah, I really like this problem. So indeed we, we, saw, uh, we saw initially this problem in the uh, paper of yours with uh, Steve Butler and uh, uh, Bobby Kleinberg and Tom Layton. Yes. And, uh, and you had several versions, but uh, but the version you mentioned is the version that I really like. And, and now there are uh, uh, quite a few uh, uh, recent papers about it. Uh, so let me just repeat what you said because I, I want to look at uh, one particular uh, sure. problem that you that you mentioned in your paper. So so we have this group of people, and. Uh, uh, and now what I want, uh, I, I want to consider the case of a complete bipartite graph. So let's say that we have uh, boys and we have girls. Okay, so we have boys and girls. And uh, each one has a, a head on his, uh, on his or her uh, head. And, uh, and the color of the head uh, comes from uh, uh, some K different colors, okay? Now in this version, as I said, it's a special case, but an interesting one. Uh, the boys, every boy sees only the girls of the, uh, only the heads of the girls. And every girl sees only the heads of the boys. And then based on this, uh, everybody has to guess his or her own, the color of uh, his or her own uh, head. And we, and we know how many colors total, correct? Yeah, and we know that they all come from K colors, right? K, K different colors. And, they, uh, and they, okay, and, they, and everything is deterministic here, no probability. So really just my guess as a boy is a function of the colors that I see of the girls that are in front of me. And okay, now, the group as a group wins if no matter what colors assignment we give them out of k colors at least one of them guesses correctly but we are fine if only one guesses correctly. Okay. so you start thinking about it and, and actually what uh, what muhammad just uh, described was a special case of this of one boy and one girl right one boy and mm -hmm. one girl if they have heads of two colors, then one of them can guess correctly by, uh, so the boy will guess that his color is identical to that of the girl and the girl will guess that her color is the opposite of the boy's girl, uh, of the boy's color. And of course, one of them will be correct. And it's not difficult to show that with more colors, if they have three colors, they cannot do it. Okay, but uh, now if we have uh, two boys and two girls, then it turns out that uh, even if the number of distinct colors is three, they can still do it. So, uh, so with three, it is, uh, and, uh, and that's, uh, uh, so, so again, there is some uh, uh, way for each one to uh, uh, 
to decide about function. Actually, even the functions are linear functions of the of the colors that you see for each one. Yeah, these are the can be I mean, actually I don't know math challenges or math Olympiad sets. These are the right. okay. okay. Now, what happens for a bigger? I mean, in general, it looks that uh, because the boys only see the colors of the girls and the girls only see the colors of the boys, it doesn't help them to guess their own, right? So exactly. That's, I think that's the beauty of that. I want to say, like yeah. when you dive deep, there's, oh, there is actually some relation right. on these seemingly yeah. unrelated things. That's right, yeah. So it looks unrelated. And in fact, the following uh, uh, can be shown. If you insist that the guessing functions are linear functions of the colors that you see, so there is a way to describe it as linear functions. You embed it all day in a field, but never mind. And as I said, for the small case, the, the examples are linear. So if the functions are linear, when the number of colors is already four, then no matter how many boys and how many girls you have, they will not be able to do it. So there mm -hmm. will always be an assignment so that they will all fail because it's linear function. But on the other hand, what happens if it's general functions? So already in your paper, uh, you, you show that, uh, that then the number of colors grows to infinity together with the number of boys and girls. So you had some weak estimates that if yes. the number of colors is maybe log log n, and we have n boys and n girls, then there is some ways that at least one of them will be successful. And, and this is kind of surprising. And we were looking at this. Uh, so, so we have this uh, uh, paper uh, with uh, uh, Ben Eliezer, uh, Shangguan, and Tamo. And, uh, and we could show that uh, even if the number of colors is uh, close to square root of n, then when we have n boys and n girls, we can guarantee with nonlinear functions, right? So we can guarantee that one of them uh, will be successful. And it's kind of a nice example where there is a, uh, this dichotomy between linear and nonlinear. Something similar happens in information theory, something called yeah. network coding. So, so it's somehow a, but I, but I should say that uh, we still don't understand. And, and I think this is a nice problem. And this is one of the problems that you, uh, that you suggest in your paper to understand exactly what happens for, for this complete bipartite graph for boys and girls. So suppose we had n boys and n girls, and the number of colors is now maybe n over two, something pretty big. Can we still guarantee that at least one will be correct? We don't know it. So to prove that we can or to prove that we cannot, both directions will be interesting. Okay? Now, there are several versions of this uh, of these problems and uh, of these head guessing problems, uh, and you can ask it for general graphs. But but I think this uh, and even people found some connection to it to some questions in communication complexity and in dynamical systems and so on. But but I think I agree with you that it's interesting just as a puzzle, and, uh, and just to understand what is happening for those boys and girls example is already very challenging and, uh, and very interesting. Uh, and, uh, and indeed recently uh, there have been uh, uh, quite a few papers on variants of, of this problem and uh, 
And it's definitely not, although it's so simple to state, uh, it's not well understood. And I think yeah. this is in general one nice thing about uh, discrete mathematics and often about uh, problems that come from computer science that often problems are very simple to state and are very hard to solve or to prove. And, uh, and often the proofs use uh, tools from uh, different areas. Uh, so here to show that uh, linear schemes cannot work, you, you have to use some properties of uh, polynomials. So you could say some, some basic results, but still results from algebraic geometry or properties of roots of polynomials. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and although it's a problem that is very simple to say, we, we don't know the solution, right? So, so it looks that, uh, 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 so it's, it's a challenging uh, thing and this is what, uh, what makes it uh, uh, so fascinating. Yeah, I think this, this is actually unique to combinatorics and discrete math that I mentioned. But there are other areas of math like algebraic geometry or especially particular. Uh, these are the areas that I mean to, yeah, like you want to think about the problem, probably you need to, I think I had some actually friends at uh, MIT that they need to read two, like three, maybe two, three, four years to read the materials to see what is the actual open problem here. But here in community, like this is the problem that we mentioned, it's like a very simple one. There are N boys, N girls, like N over two colors. And the question is that can these people do anything such that they can at least one of them guess the correct, uh, has a guess, correct guess of his or her own hat. It's a very simple to say. Right. But I think to want to solve it, it's like you may need to use lots of techniques and things. And that actually makes it interesting. I mean, somehow to some people maybe say, oh, this is like a simple problem. But at the same time, I mean, to solve it, you really need to do harder stuff. And probably it might be harder than some other algebraic geometry problem that you solve because you are, as you mentioned, I think you are on top of the mountain and you solve some problem here in the ground, but still you need lots of techniques to uh, solve the problem. So and I think in general, this intersection of, I mean, you are doing a lot of this, we say intersection of algebraic geometry, topology. And so uh, like, I think if, if uh, I'm a PhD student, I want to be, I mean, essentially more mathy stuff. Is there any general advice that how should I, when should I look at essentially math? And because this is also, this is, I think maybe there are more connection between theoretical computer science and math. Or for example, the PCP theorems, or lots of I mean, or like for example, as you mentioned, network coding or other stuff. But uh, in general, I think this is the question. Embedding this is also another place that lots of intersections. But I mean, when should but when should I look at it, and where should I look at it for math things? If I'm working in the computer, say theoretical computer science, because that's some question actually some of the people ask me on that. Right, yeah. So, so I think that by now is there, are, is there are several pretty good surveys of people that write about, about using specific methods in, in computer science or in, so, so there are like books on the polynomial method. So, so just to use some simple or not so simple results from algebraic geometry to, uh, to solve questions uh, that are combinatorial in nature. Uh, and, uh, and actually in our first papers that you mentioned about this embedding, we were using this uh, uh, Milner, Tom, Warren. So, 
So those results from real algebraic geometries that uh, give some bounds about the number of sign patterns of, uh, of polynomials. Uh, I mean, in general, polynomial is very, a very basic notion in mathematics. And it turns out that understanding properties of roots of polynomials is, uh, is very powerful. And, uh, and algebraic geometry, basically what it deals with is the uh, properties of a uh, of uh, uh, roots of, uh, of varieties so of, uh, of just uh, systems of polynomials. Uh, and this turns out, uh, turns out to be useful. And, uh, uh, and I guess in, uh, in books about uh, uh, computational geometry, uh, you will see usually some material uh, uh, that is covered and, uh, uh, and also uh, Topology, so things like uh, Borsuk-Ulam theorem or fixed point theorems uh, are uh, are also often uh, uh, useful for uh, for algorithms. Uh, 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 like uh, as I mentioned, so I think I will suggest that anyone who wants to do uh, like on probabilistic and random, what they really definitely should read your book, the probabilistic method with Joel Spencer. I actually use several parts of it and like about the telegrant inequality and other the, the beautiful thing. Are there some books that I mean maybe is easier, not that hard, but it still would be useful for students in computer science essentially to read it, especially more more theory background. Right. Uh, so I think uh, uh, Matushek has this book about, uh, uh, I forget the exact title, but the applications of Borsuk-Ulam uh, theorem. Yeah. So it's like a small, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and it basically gives some uh, very nice applications of, uh, uh, of the basic uh, topological tools uh, uh, to to get results in uh, uh, that, that really often uh, look uh, completely combinatorial. Uh, I can mention actually, uh, so that's another paper of mine, early paper of mine that I like, it's called the necklace uh, theorem. So this is, uh, uh, again, it sounds completely discrete uh, and actually it originally came from a question of, uh, of Leighton and uh, Lyserson. Uh, so, so they had the motivation, uh, this was in the 80s, uh, from VLSI circuit design. Nobody cares about this area anymore, but, uh, but still it's a, uh, it's a very natural question. And it's, uh, but, but let me tell you the statement. Uh, so suppose we have a necklace. And uh, so necklace, I think, and, and we open it, it's a clasp. So it is just an interval of beads. Okay, an interval of, uh, of beads of different kinds. And so we have red beads and we have uh, green beads and we have yellow beads and we have, uh, okay. And suppose we want to split the necklace into K collections. Uh, so one way to think about it is that this necklace has been stolen by K thieves together and they want to split it in a fair way among them. Okay, so uh, uh, so they want that each one of them will get exactly the same number of bits of each type. Let's say that the number of bits of each type is divisible by K, okay? And what they want to do is they want to cut the necklace. So it's this interval of bits. We want to cut them in not too many places, and then we'll get intervals of bits and split the intervals into K collections, and each collection will 
contain exactly the same number of beads of each type, okay? Yeah. And the question is how many cuts we need. But you can do that. So let's see some example. Here is an example of a pretty simple necklace, namely, suppose that all the red beads appear contiguously. And afterwards, all the yellow beads appear contiguously, afterwards, all the white beads and all, and so on. So just to cut the red beads into mm. K collections, we, we, you K need K minus one. one cuts inside the red part, and K minus one cuts inside the yellow part, and K minus one cuts. So altogether, you need K minus one times T cuts if T is the number of types of beads in this example. Okay. Now the theorem is uh, that k minus one times t cuts are always enough. They always suffice, no matter how complicated the uh, necklace is. So, so, but what the bond k minus one times times t t is the number of types uh, times the of number the of types of p. And, and so here, by complicated, it might be that we have a few red, then a few green, then a few red again. And so on, so forth. Right. Yeah, and it can be completely complicated, right? Very, very complicated. And the statement is that always k minus one times t cuts are always enough. And the proof of this, so there are several nice things about this thing. So, so the proof of this is topological. I don't know no. any non-topological proof. So it uses a, a and. A, and the proof, because it uses topology in an essential way, it does not give an algorithm. So we don't know how to do it efficiently. Suppose that K and T are big. So we know that there, there is a way to find the cuts, but we don't know how to find them. Moreover, it has been uh, approved uh, uh, recently uh, by uh, uh, Goldberg and uh, Aris Philos Ratsikas that that the problem of finding these cuts uh, is what is called PPA complete. So it is complete mm -hmm. for some complexity class, namely, in general, to find such few cuts is probably difficult. We, we know, if we know to solve this, then we know also to find Nash equilibrium. We know to solve efficiently all kinds of problems that we don't know how to do efficiently. But so that's a PPAD complete, correct? So, so it is PPA complete, which is oh, a PPA, D complete, but uh, but uh, but it is PPA D hard, right? Uh, because PPA D is contained in PPA. But uh, uh, but this is a uh, so right, and and something similar happens uh, to some of those combinatorial applications or computer science applications of a. Uh, of tools from uh, algebraic geometry that they give results that they uh, do not provide efficient algorithms. There we don't know hardness results, but uh, but we don't know an algorithm. So I, yeah, I give you uh, uh, actually, I mean, a very similar thing that we had also some work on that one. It's about the fair division problem of a cake. Because yeah, there also that is like you have a cake, you want to have a bonded number of the cake. I mean, we had this one actually, I think it was some. Uh, Fox paper that actually they got it uh, for the fair division. We had this one for the like a chore division that this is like negatively thing. The people want less of that instead of they want more of that. And that's also, I mean, getting that, that's actually generalized the positive version. 
but but these are, I think there might be some relation between these are because the similar type of thing they cut there and I think uh, don't remember the exact ones but I think some of them we can we can show that this there is a bonded number of things the bond is still horrible I mean like the things is not like the best bond that you have it and I'm not so sure that actually we have the algorithms for that case even for that bond so the same type of thing that you mentioned and is there any upper bound on the problem I mean that you can do it algorithmically. Yes, so uh, so we have uh, so first I agree it's very uh, it's very related uh, this cake cutting problems and indeed this has the origin with uh, Steinhaus and Banach in the thirties. Yeah. It's really uh, but uh, now for the problems that I mentioned, uh, we have a pretty recent paper uh, with uh, uh, some uh, someone who was a student in Princeton. He's now in Stanford, uh, and the uh, Andrew Grauer is his name. And we could do a number of cuts that is a, a something like a, a k times t times the logarithm of the length of the of the necklace. So oh, it has some dependence. There is no known algorithmic version that gives any function of k and t. All the known algorithmic versions they grow with the length of the necklace. It's and, uh, and it's uh, it's very interesting, uh, I think, to to find uh, to find something better, because the hardness result just says that uh, it's hard to find uh, a very small number. But uh, yeah, but so it, potentially, I mean, it can be like maybe the exponential in K and T. That would be the yeah. So I uh, that's right. Even this is not known, and I, yeah. I don't know, I don't know any function of K and T. Because, because indeed the only uh, the only proof that we know uses this uh, fixed point Borsuk type theorem basically, and uh, and this is not algorithmic, and it's not clear how to uh, transform it. To <laughs> So, uh, yeah, actually, we already mentioned, I think we had some open problem section. There are two things that we mentioned. I think one for this hat guessing, uh, hat guessing game for the graph by bipartite graph, right. and the yeah. number of things is linear. I think the other one is this nice problem that is still the. I mean, when did you have the first paper on that? Uh, the original first paper is very old. Uh, maybe it's in uh, 86 or something. 86. Uh, <laughs> I, I was still in MIT. I think uh, yeah. when I wrote it, uh, uh, and uh, but, but the last paper I had uh, on this was uh, last year, so I still uh, uh, working on I, that one. Uh, but I think I like... about some randomized. Uh, so uh, so about the algorithm, it's uh, just uh, from last year maybe, and uh, yeah. uh, and it's uh, uh, right, yeah. But but I think these general problems of finding algorithmic proofs for some of these non-constructive arguments, so also something using, uh, so there is some theorems that I like, uh, that I want, to, I call it combinatorial nullstelz. So it's, it's, some, it's some algebraic geometry type things. It has lots of applications. And this has lots of applications uh, to problems uh, that sound computational and it does not give algorithm and there also each example gives you a a, a possible algorithmic question i don't uh, uh, which uh, which we don't know to uh, to solve efficiently and uh, and it would be nice so so if you want some specific example let me uh, 
Yeah, that would be good actually. These are, I think, it's the open problems in this developer. Yeah, if you right. Let's let's talk about this uh, head guessing again because we already yeah, talked sure. about head guessing. So suppose, as I said, uh, with uh, linear functions, if the guessing functions are linear, they cannot even do four four types of columns. Okay. Yeah. So, so this so this proof is uh, algebraic. It uses this combinatorial notion and that. Suppose let me ask you an algorithmic question. So suppose I give you a, this a complete bipartite graph in boys and girls, and I give for each of, I give you for each of them a linear function. So each girl has a linear function of the colors of the boys, and each boy has a linear function of the colors of the girls. This is now a linear function over a field of four elements, say, let's say, okay? Yeah. Now, as I said, then this cannot work. Namely, there is some assignment of colors so that everybody is wrong. This is what the algebraic proof tells me. Can you find such an assignment of colors efficiently? I give you the, the linear functions, can you find uh, some color assignment on which everybody is wrong? We know that it exists because of the algebraic proof, but the proof does not give an efficient uh, algorithm. And, uh, mm -hmm. and there are many, many examples like this. Uh, maybe I'll mention one more. So, so this is some extension of the four color theorem. Eh? The four color theorem, it is known that it's equivalent to the statement that if I have a planar graph and it is what is called cubic and bridgeless. So every degree is three, every vertex has degree three and every edge is contained in a cycle, okay? <laughs> then the four color theorem, this is well known, it's an old result of Tate from the 19th century that the, the four color theorem is equivalent that each such graph you can color the edges by three colors so that uh, no two edges, every color class uh, is a perfect matching. <coughs> yes. So a planar, uh, okay. Now here is a more general uh, statement. Uh, suppose I still want to get a, a coloring of the edges. But every edge now, so we have this planar graph, all the degrees are three and every edge is contained in a cycle. But now for every edge, you have a list of three colors, not the same colors, so it's called list coloring. List coloring, yes. So, so the first edge, you can color it either red or blue or green. The second edge, you can color it either red or yellow or, uh, or black and so on. So for each edge, you have a list of three colors. Then we could show using this algebraic uh, <laughs> approach that there is always a coloring from the lists, no matter what the lists are. So the four color theorem is equivalent to the case that the lists are all the same list. Yeah. But if the lists are different, then, then still it is true. And this uses this algebraic approach and it also uses the four color theorem because so, we don't get a new proof of the four color theorem. We use it, but you use it in kind of a strange way. You use the four color theorem in order to show that some coefficient of some polynomial is non-zero. 
never mind. So it's safe. Okay, but this again is an algebraic result. What about an algorithm? I give you such a planar graph. All degrees are three, and every edge is contained in a cycle, and I give every edge a list of three columns. As I said, we can color properly from the list. Can you actually find such a coloring efficiently? The proof does not give it. I mean, the proof of the, the original proof of the four color theorem, of course, it's complicated, uses computers and so on, but it does give efficient algorithm. There is no problem. I mean, it gives a quadratic algorithm to four color a, a planar graph or to three yes. color edges, uh, right? But to color from the least, we don't know an algorithm. We just. Yes, so I think, yeah, so the catch is that I mean, the four color, the least, I mean, then it's the coloring from the least, like this color version, there is no polynomial time algorithm. Right. Is there yes. any, so, I think exponential, of course, that you can get it. The number sure, of yeah, you, you can check like the K to the N or something like this. Yeah. But the question is, can we do it this one? And we know that there exists such a thing, there is like the, uh, such a thing is the because um, of colors. The, yeah. mm -hmm. right. But the yeah. question is that how can we obtain that one? There's one other problem that actually I wanted to find, I may remember it. Uh, I, this was another one that I will, if I remember it, I mentioned it. So these are, I think these are actually nice set of problems that thinking about these problems, and I think that's actually very good set of problems. And these are generally also uh, open for a long time. So if the PhD students, I mean, you want to work on it or research that these are like a nice problems to, I think probably also hard problems, but you should not expect that you will get Right, so things. probably they are hard. I mean, maybe the question that we said about the necklace to find a, a larger number of cuts that will suffice, maybe this is not, so this does not have such a long history. So, so just to do the best that you can do. And as you said, it's the same as the cake, some of the cake cutting problems. Are, uh, are kind of similar, uh, so uh, so these are, uh, uh, but, uh, but, but of course, uh, these are not, I think they are not uh, easy problems, uh, uh, because uh, uh, at least uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, great, so uh, I think we talk about, I mean, a few of the topics, I think some uh, maybe remaining uh, topic, I mean, some other, I think you had, I mean, again, we cannot go over all things, but just a few other things I think maybe you want to talk about. I mean, RS graphs, it's not again one, I think these are some of the things that we talk about in magic in some sense, like the one that we mentioned about the hat guess, uh, I mean, hat guessing problem that from the color of others, someone can find the color of, this is actually an interesting thing. And the other one is like the same thing. This is both of them actually, they have this magic to me, the color coding theorem and the RS graph. The fact that even RS graph exists for this, I think you can define this. These are actually interesting or the color coding or other things that I think is interesting. And it would be good actually if there are some open main open problem also other than finding this algorithm, please mention it because I think that's the thing that the people can work on that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so some of those, uh, okay, so, so let me mention something about the Ruja separated graphs, because indeed I, uh, I like it, uh, it's a, uh, and, uh, and maybe indeed not everything is tight there. So, so the original thing was due to uh, Ruja and Semerady in the 70s, and, uh, and the important thing is that they realized uh, this correspondence between dense subsets of integers that do not contain three-term arithmetic progressions, 
in some graphs that have some magic properties. Uh, so, uh, and then there are different uh, parameters of these. Uh, so let me mention this one version of the graphs that, uh, that appears in a paper we had with uh, Ankur Moitra and uh, Benny Sudakov, because it really sounds pretty amazing that these graphs exist. Uh, Exactly. Based on the same amazing. Uh, right, yeah. So it's based on the same connections that Kruja and Semredi found between some geometric constructions and graphs, but they, but the statement is as follows. So there exists a graph which is almost complete. So we have n vertices, and almost every pair is connected. So I'll soon say numbers, but really almost so you have. 99.9% of the pairs are connected by edges. This one graph. And at the same time, you can partition all the edges into matchings, and each matching is induced. So a matching would be some part of uh, edges that form a matching. No two of them have a common endpoint. And they are induced in the graph, namely on the subgraph induced on them, there are no other edges. You only see the matching. Okay, so all this say, uh, so you can partition this very dense graph into induced matchings and every matching is of size n to the one minus little one. So very big matching. You see, if you have even one matching of size n over two that covers everything, then you are not allowed to have any edges whatsoever, right? Because it's exactly just... that's exactly the beauty of this. So yeah. when you try to construct it, I think when you mention there is a bond, but when you try to construct it, oh, how come we can add the, right. as you mentioned, yeah. n over two, you cannot add any other edges essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it looks, and the matchings are pretty big. So it looks that almost all edges are missing, right? Because you have these huge matchings. And, uh, and then they are induced. So it looks as if almost all edges are missing, but in fact, almost all edges are in, right? So almost all, uh, and, uh, uh, and this has, uh, because it's so strange, it has some nice applications to radio network, to the a, a graph test in the PCP theorem and to some, so it somehow has, uh, but just because it is uh, uh, surprising and, uh, and I think that still in this uh, uh, type of, uh, of graphs, there are several parameters. So it's not, it's not understood uh, what is a tight connection between, uh, uh, between the parameters. Uh, and then the constructions, uh, uh, once you decide what to do, is not difficult to, to describe. So it's based on some high dimensional uh, geometry. So some. Uh, Measure concentration, but uh, uh, but indeed it's very uh, it's very surprising. Uh, so this is a uh, uh, this is a Ruja semi graph, uh, and uh, and as I said, uh, some uh, some bounds there are still uh, uh, completely not understood. So some parameters are uh, relevant to what's called the triangle removal lemma, where there is a huge gap between. Uh, between upper and lower bounds, uh, or uh, or it is related to bearing construction about the maximum density of a subset of the integers between one and n with no three-term progression, 
on which they also... <laughs> I think even the bond, the exact bond or the number of edges of these graphs also is not uh, completely settled out. We know upper and lower bond, but it's not completely... No, no, it's not. Yeah, there is a big gap. So somehow if you have a... a so again, I, I think it's a difficult problem, but maybe let's say the following. Suppose you have a graph in which uh, this one simple way to state it. Suppose you have a graph on n vertices and every edge is contained in a unique triangle, in one triangle. Every edge is contained in one triangle. Okay? So there's some property of the graph. And the question is how many, what is the maximum number of edges you can have in such a graph? Such a, graph. a graph in which every edge is contained in one triangle, in exactly one triangle. So it is known that this maximum is bigger than n to the two minus epsilon for every epsilon. So it is pretty dense. So that follows from the Behrend construction. And on the other hand, it is known, so this was proved basically by Semredi or by Ruja and Semredi, that it is also known that this maximum is little of n squared. So it is not more than uh, Right, so it is more than n to the two minus epsilon for every epsilon, but it is less than epsilon n square also for any epsilon, if n is big. But to understand the bounds are between uh, n square over log star or something is the upper bound, n square over log star of n, and the lower bound is something like n square over two to the square root log n. So, so there is still a very big gap between the upper and lower bound, and it's related to several questions in number theory and in, uh, and in property testing. It's kind of, uh, it's interesting to understand it. Uh, again, I think it's a very difficult problem, but, uh, uh, but, it's, uh, uh, but it's, it's a nice uh, problem. Uh, yeah, I think I saw. I wanted to add. Actually, this is the one that I remember. So uh, this is this uh, another problem that essentially used topology, or essentially, I, I mean, uh, I think uh, uh, topology that we are considering, like the different surfaces, not just plain torus and other essentially genus things, or like uh, some others, as you mentioned, algebraic geometry that talks about polynomial things, and we don't know the algorithm for that. I think another famous problem that he had actually paper with uh, Christos Papadimitio on that is about the, uh, uh, I think, Giori Lovas theorem that uh, I think you should, uh, you know, probably that as well, that you have a graph of K-connected graphs, and there are the numbers N1 to NK is given to us, and they, we know that we can also, so there are K-connected graphs between any two vertices, there are K-disjoint paths. And we can uh, actually, uh, the theorem says that if you give me N1 to NK, these are the numbers that their sum is equal to N, I can divide this subgraph into disjoint connected subgraphs such that the size of the first one is N1, the second one is N2 and others. And each of them is connected. That's actually another one actually uses this yeah, kind of yeah. the... It is this and, and even you can force uh, each of them to contain a pre-specified vertex. So yeah, exactly, yeah, and pre-specified vertex. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, so that's this is, uh, Right, so this is another example there. Actually, mm -hmm. it's even more... So there, there are two different proofs because the proof of Lovas was exactly. topological. The proof of Jerry was a, a, was combinatorial. It's kind of a augmenting path type argument, a complicated yeah. augmenting path. 
but it's uh, but the way it is described, it's exponential process. So it's not clear. I mean, it kind of looks more like an algorithm, but the algorithm may take exponential time, as far as we know. And uh, and indeed, in this example, we also don't know how to find it. Uh, uh, how to find it efficiently. Uh, we know to find it efficiently for k equals two. So that would uh, come from a ST numbering of a graph, but uh, uh, for the special case of two, but not uh, but not for larger. Yeah. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's also- It has some approximation for that. I just was some still working paper on that one. Uh, great. So that was the thing. So I think you want to also mention color coding. I think that's also another magic that okay. I use it yeah. in some big parameter. And, uh, yeah, because also that's very easy to describe. So, so let's say if the original problem is to suppose we, we have a graph, an input graph. It's an algorithmic problem. We have an input graph. We want to decide if it contains a path, just a simple path of length k. Okay, so and we want an efficient algorithm and uh, we can extend it to more, but, uh, but let's just think about this thing, this case. And the interesting case would be that K is equal to log N. So you want, uh, because this was a specific uh, question of, uh, of Papa Dimitri or Yanakakis, I think uh, the question was, can you do it in polynomial time or not? And this, and what we realize is that uh, uh, you can do it in polynomial time. So that's in a, a paper with uh, uh, Euster and Zwick. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the basic, the description of that is, uh, so in general, you can decide if a graph contains a, a path of length k in time, which is exponential in k, something like maybe two to the k or four to the k, times the polynomial in N. So, I mean, you are doing some kind of branch and boundary backtracking, correct? Uh, no, so I, I'll tell you exactly what we yeah. do. So, so that turned out to be useful in parameterized complexity, right? Yeah. Because this is a, but, but anyway, so, so here, is a, here is actually the algorithm. It's very easy to describe it. Uh, so you first describe it as a randomized algorithm. So the randomized algorithm, you color the vertices <laughs> randomly by K colors. Okay, and you hope that if there is a path of length k, say k vertices, you hope that each of them get distinct colors. colors. Now this happens with a probability k factorial over k to the k, which is only exponentially small, one over e to the k roughly. So if you will do it exponentially many times, you, you will get it. Uh, you get so essentially when you boost it, you can't do that. But everything is dependent yeah. on K essentially. Yeah. Okay. All, yeah. And now and now we want to find if there is such a path. Now it's already a graph that is colored. And we ask, is there a path in which the all the colors appear, everyone exactly once? And this you can do by dynamic programming. It's not difficult. So basically you can do it in dynamic programming. Uh, with dynamic programming in time uh, two to the k times n, or two to the k mm -hmm. times n squared or something, right? So, so, so this is basically already a randomized algorithm. And then the nice thing is that you can de-randomize it. So you don't really need to use probability to de-randomize it. Just by the way I describe it, it's enough 
to find a polynomial number of coloring the vertices by k colors, so that every set of size k in at least one of the colors gets distinct colors, yeah, right? Because then you will try it for each All of them. them. Yeah, and this, it turns out that you can do it by some explicit caching uh, schemes. So, uh, so to describe it completely, it takes some time, but it, uh, I mean, the nice thing is that the algorithm, if you look at it, you implement it, I don't know, it will do some things that look totally irrelevant. It will compute some polynomials over finite field and it will do these hashing things that look uh, kind of irrelevant and then it will do this dynamic programming and still it will work. And then it turned out, uh, so this is like the simplest case of the color coding and uh, but but it led to a, a, to quite a lot of additional things and because it's uh, useful in parameterized complexity and also maybe in uh, in computational biology when people uh, wanted to count uh, you can also uh, count or approximately count how many paths of length uh, k the graph contains and it's not only for path you can replace path by cycle you can replace it actually by any fixed graph with a bounded tree width. Uh, so, so it's kind of... Uh, uh, yeah, that's actually a beautiful... Term. So you called it color, color coding. Yeah, right? color, yeah, we called it uh, color coding because it looks that it's like uh, you color code the vertices by the coloring and then you use it to, uh, uh, to kind of uh, uh, find this, uh, uh, this uh, multicolor. Uh, yeah, I think that's a beautiful, I mean, theorem. I, I use it as a, again, this is one of the other things that when you think, I mean, that's okay, it works. But you try, when you try to use it, we actually use it to get a very general set of fixed parameter algorithms using this uh, color coding, actually. Right. You can uh, get the result. And this is very, like a beautiful algorithm. You want to find the path of length k, you don't know. I mean, this problem is, I mean, if k is large, becomes mp hard, essentially. We don't know how it can be. Right. But then for a small k, what you do, you just, I mean, color these guys randomly, and then you just do some dynamic programming and solve it. That's actually a beautiful algorithm, I'm saying. But the idea of the game, but the one that if you want to de-randomize it and use this other, uh, like, essentially, yeah, polynomial yeah. things, then yeah. becomes, I mean, more involved. But still, I mean, very interesting that all of them, I think that's the thing that I mentioned in the announcement that how interestingly, like, uh, this, uh, I mean, you actually bring this kind of the, things from algebraic geometry, from topology, and then make it algorithm. I think that's a beautiful, uh, very beautiful uh, set of uh, results. Is there any open problem here for this problem? For yes, I think, I mean, people kept uh, improving. Uh, uh, so in parameterized complexity, you want to get uh, C to the K times a fixed polynomial, and you want C to be as small as possible. You see, it yeah. is a, a it is clear if you believe the exponential time hypothesis, uh, you, it is clear that you cannot hope to do better than that, right? Uh, yes. You cannot okay. get polynomial time, right? You cannot uh, get SQL root of K. But you want to get a, a smaller C, and then there were uh, pretty clever things. So people were using exterior algebra. Uh, there, were, there were some uh, uh, very nice things that, uh, uh, that went uh, into that. And, uh, and then uh, maybe it still uh, uh, would be nice to uh, to decide uh, what 
what is the best thing you can do from a parameterized uh, point of view, like what is the best uh, C so that uh, the algorithm will be C to the K times the polynomial in N. And, uh, and then you want to extend it uh, from, uh, uh, from paths to cycles and to a, uh, uh, so we were working also on a, a, you want efficient algorithms to decide if a graph contains a cycle of length k, a, how, a, a, how efficient is it for every, a, for every given k, a, what is the best that you can do. And it's kind of understood more or less uh, for small values of k. It's not completely understood uh, uh, for bigger k's. And, uh, and then it is um, closely related to specific questions in, uh, in parameterized complexity. Uh, you, you know, even people do not know how, how efficient is it to decide if a graph contains a triangle. Yeah, exactly. so, so this is basically matrix multiplication. I mean, we, we don't know, yeah. uh, but... Uh, yeah, exactly. That's uh, like, a, I mean, or we, yeah, this is even for the threesome. We don't know whether n square is the best thing right. or yeah. not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, great. So uh, I think any, uh, just, uh, I mean, maybe just a uh, thing for this type of research thing. Any other I mean, areas that you want to mention that, are, I mean, we missed, of course, a lot of papers. We cannot have everything, but uh, important one. And also, I mean, among the open problems also to finish it, are there any, like, if, you, I mean, somebody asked, what are the two, three most important problems? Did we mention all of them or still there are some other open problems that you will mention that? And sometimes you wish to, that they will be solved essentially soon, maybe okay. not soon, but so, yeah. Okay, so in, in terms of uh, uh, areas uh, or topics that we didn't mention, I, I'll only mention the buzzwords. So, so really I worked a lot for many years on expanders and all kinds of applications of expanders. Uh, so I just uh, mentioned that this is something on which I worked a lot, but uh, so these are sparse graphs that are highly connected and have uh, many, many applications and, uh, and they have connection to the spectrum of the graphs, but, uh, but I just mentioned the buzzword uh, and, uh, and maybe there was some conjecture of Hadwiger and De Brunner in the, uh, in combinatorial uh, geometry, uh, but uh, but let's again uh, uh, leave this uh, just as a word itself. Uh, yeah, I think this uh, RS graph, especially and expanders, these are like the most I will say magic graphs that somebody but, can. Uh, but expanders are more yeah, so they are also magic maybe, but, but they are more sparse, right? So yeah, exactly. So uh, but I think I will say I mean the door to magic graph that if you want to work, I mean if you want to work essentially for planar graphs, I think planar graph bonded or velocity graphs, these are for the right. sparse yeah. graph. Yeah. Yeah. But so expanders I think goes still a sparse graphs generally, but it's hard and then they goes to RS graphs that becomes complicated. These are like the that's right. they had, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they look, uh, they look random. Or, uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, okay. So in terms of uh, problems, uh, I mean, uh, so those are the problems that I would really want to solve, but that are probably very hard, right? So, uh, so probably one of the most interesting uh, problems, and uh, only in the old days, I was working uh, on it a little bit, but. Uh, uh, is to find bounds for a uh, for circuit complexity of uh, of things, right? Uh, so, right. Uh, 
So this is related to PNP, but even if you are not, uh, I mean, of course, we would all like to solve the PNP, <laughs> problem, but even if not, uh, so just to prove uh, uh, some, uh, some mild uh, lower bounds for a uh, circuit complexity shows that uh, any Boolean circuit that solves, uh, I don't know, the click problem needs to be of size at least uh, cubic, at least, uh, I mean, so just to get, uh, so there are these bounds for monotone circuits, uh, but, uh, but in general, there are basically no non-trivial uh, lower bounds, and, it's, uh, and there are some reasons to think that it's hard to, uh, because of the connection to natural proofs and so on, that maybe it would be hard uh, to, to prove such things, but, uh, but this is a very concrete problem, and this, is, uh, uh, and this uh, would be very nice. Uh, then there are these uh, problems that I mentioned about uh, uh, finding algorithmic versions of, uh, of existing theorems that are proved uh, using some of those uh, algebraic or topological tools. Uh, and there are many examples like that, and it could be that some of them are not, maybe some of them are not so difficult. I, I don't know. I mean, I can, uh, I can think. Uh, so still, so essentially this problem that we already discussed about the, uh, I mean, getting yeah, algorithm yeah, for this. Yeah, so some of them uh, we discussed, uh, there are others uh, as well, but, uh, uh, and, uh, and then uh, uh, in terms of uh, major problems in discrete mathematics, uh, you know, there is this uh, sunflower problem of, uh, of Erdős and Radon, which there have, has been uh, some major breakthroughs uh, uh, recently, but it's still not uh, completely uh, solved. Uh, there is a... a uh, the sunflower, sunflower, I mean. uh, sunflower uh, problem that, that also has uh, many connections uh, to uh, and uh, uh, yeah, the a problem that uh, that I thought about uh, on and off for quite a while. So it's a uh, it's a Ramsey type, it's a combinatorial problem, but it's also equivalent to some question in. Uh, on Shannon capacity of graphs, which is natural in information theory. But let me just state it as a, as a combinatorial problem. It's equivalent. So this uh, is a Ramsey type question. And this is a, what is the maximum size, maximum number of vertices of a complete graph so that you can color the edges, not a proper coloring. You can color the edges by K colors with no monochromatic triangle. So you don't see a triangle of the same color, you have K colors, and we want to color all the edges of a, as big a complete graph as we can. So there is, the lower bounds are exponential in K. There are, I mean, a simple lower bound is like two to the K, but, uh, but there are better ones. So two to the K is uh, whenever you add a color, you take two copies of what you have already, and the bipartite graph between them, you color in the new color. So since it's bipartite, there is no triangle, and, uh, and also there is no triangle here, and this would give two to the K. But, uh, but there are actually constructions that give about 3.2 maybe to the K, something like this. And the upper bound is more than exponential, so it's something like K factorial. 
And the main question here is, is it exponential or is it more than exponential? And somehow for the question in the Shannon capacity, you really take the case root of that. So the natural question is if the case root of that is finite or not. And the, therefore uh, the gap between exponential and more than, expo than exponential is, uh, is kind of the interesting thing. And, uh, uh, and this, uh, this is also an interesting problem, I think. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think that was uh, like a great thing for the research. I think we'd like to <laughs> make you right, just, I mean, I think a few more questions and I think we are done. This is a non-technical question. I think maybe this is the vision also that would be nice. So uh, I think uh, like one thing you mentioned about the administrative work, I think that is also another thing. I mean, there are some, I mean, several uh, people working on, I mean, theory or non-theory, they took like administrative, you were the child, uh, you were the chair of the, uh, I think the CS department, as you mentioned. And I mean, so generally, I mean, did you take other administrative work and how do you think about administrative work? Like what would be the uh, things, I mean, the, are you planning to take more I mean, the, or like you feel that, okay, I'm going there, then I cannot maybe do my research that much. And I feel I, that happened to me actually sometimes that I went to industry yet. I mean, took more, more time. I said, oh, I didn't explain publishing the, this year that productive or something like this. Yeah. Yes, so I, I so I do some administrative things in the you know like uh, program committees or prize committees and so on, but uh, but this is not uh, I don't plan to uh, to be a dean or something. Yeah. So, so this really is a, I mean I did it as I said for two years. It was a, it was very very time consuming. I think it was a, it was. More or less, okay, so maybe I mentioned that my main duty was at the time they wanted, uh, like many uh, universities around the world, to separate the computer science department from the mathematics department. In many other places, computer science was part of uh, engineering, mm -hmm. but in Israel, traditionally, it started with, uh, uh, with mathematics. Math. And somehow the perception, so I had a joint appointment uh, in both departments and I have good relations with, uh, with both. So somehow the assumption was that uh, I'd be able to do it peacefully. You know, you have to split budget, you have to split. Uh, and, uh, and it was, uh, so splitting the budget was easy. It turns out that splitting the real estate, the office space, is a very, very difficult thing. And uh, that was, uh, that really took years and uh, it's a, uh, so, so it was uh, challenging. Uh, I think I was uh, basically okay, but probably I, I don't see that I'm better in this than, uh, than other people. And, uh, and I, uh, I probably don't, uh, uh, I, I think I've uh, I've done enough of that, uh, yeah. but uh, so taking, uh, but but still, I mean, we all have to do some administration. I think this is part of our, our duty. So so as I said, I mean, being an editor, uh, being in uh, serving on some prize committee, doing things like that. Uh, these are things that I uh, that I still do. Uh, yeah, and I think I mean this is uh, this is the important one. I think that is. Like we were talking actually, I think with uh, Professor Matusson as well on those stuff that I think uh, these are the things that uh, in some, as you mentioned, I think 
exactly that that we should take this administrative thing like for example being the chair or other because like generally i'm a very strong researcher i mean <laughs> like yourself essentially that would be great i mean because that person would be the face of the department or face of the college in some sense and at the same time it is always i will say that the best person is the person who does not want to <laughs> take the job like because i think for that person i mean there are other options so it's like he wants to actually serve and make something improve not promote himself in terms of management at this one and become a boss and generally i think we have i had this i have experience i think i'm sure you have experience that the people that they want to make a career out of it and uh, that's like then they want to be boss of others this should be not the case it should be more like the service provider to others if you become the chair or the dean not that you are just going there to promote yourself i mean of course if you do a good service that may happen as a natural consequence of that but if you go there and you want to be the boss i think the people will be unhappy about it and yeah no i i think i, I mean i still admire people who are willing to do it and they and it's fine with me if part of uh, the motivation is also personal but the uh, but definitely part is also uh, you, you know it's uh, it's your incentive to do a good job as an administrator even if you uh, uh, if you view it uh, uh, partly as a, uh, as a mean to promote yourself but still the way to promote yourself would be to do a good job and make sure that your department will uh, uh, will be excellent and will uh, so so the two things are not contradictory and uh, and i think it's okay and, and there are people who are willing uh, uh, to do it and, and some people are very good in uh, in doing uh, in doing these things uh, well but uh, but there are also people who do not want to do any of this at all which also is okay but uh, but I, I think i mean i view it that uh, i've done my share and i would still do a uh, some things uh, but not things that uh, that require really years of service uh, i mean to really be a, a dean or a, a it means that uh, that for a few years you you basically uh, don't do research at all and uh, and uh, this is not uh, is not something that uh, I, mean, I don't know how many years i i still have left that, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I had the same feeling essentially. Like for a year, I was like, Amazon, oh, this uh, my productivity went down. I feel bad about it and should uh, do this one. Yeah, I think that was the thing. So, do you want to add I mean, anything also about the industry versus, I mean, academia? I think you have been maybe a few words you want to say, and then I think. Yeah, so it's. Uh, I mean, uh, as you said, uh, I, I've been. Uh, uh, I spent some time in several uh, in. Uh, in IBM, I was once in Microsoft a lot. I think met you a lot. Microsoft in Bell Labs, in Bell Core. In, yeah. uh, so, so that's interesting, and uh, and I think now the connection between uh, uh, industry and academia, because of all the high tech, uh, is pretty close. Uh, but I'm more on the theoretical side. So always, uh, even when I was in Microsoft or in uh, Bell Core, Bell Labs, I was talking mostly with the theory people. Uh, and actually, if we talk about, uh, about industry, I, I was even uh, at some point uh, during the bubble, you know, at some point, everybody was uh, kind of uh, involved in some startups. Uh, so exactly. uh, so in around 2000, I was uh, 
uh, I was also involved in uh, as a co-founder in, uh, in one uh, uh, some company of uh, of security and even uh, and maybe uh, uh, and and it even uh, this company for many years uh, uh, it kind of existed and uh, and then it went public actually in 2018 uh, so it was mm. uh, uh, so this had something to do with security. After five years, I was less involved uh, in it, but it was. But you were the founder of that company, actually. Yeah, but I, I was a co-founder, but, but it was diluted many times. So uh, yeah, still, it was it was something there. I mean, because and then it went public, and then it was uh, afterwards. Uh, after it was public, it was even bought uh, by, uh, uh, and it became private again. But but that time I was not really involved. Uh, uh, but still, it was really an interesting experience to see how this goes and to see it also from the investment point of view, you know, so for a while I was, uh, I was also talking with uh, venture capitalists when we, uh, uh, when we got investments and, uh, yeah. and it was kind of uh, interesting, uh, but, uh, uh, but right, but, uh, but not, uh, I, I was kind of, uh, Although I was one of the co-founders, I was less involved uh, directly. Than, uh, and so, yeah. so that is interesting, actually, that you went through these VCs as well, because that's a different world, essentially, completely different yeah, world. Yeah, well, it was still yeah. interesting to see to see how it goes, and uh, and uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, I mean, you know, when the bubble collapsed. So, so as I said, for for many years, this. Uh, this company was uh, kind of struggling, but uh, but finally it, uh, it succeeded uh, somehow. So so much. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. And uh, so one question: Have you ever written code? Uh, I mean, like maybe I mean after your study, like undergrad yeah, or grad so, or something. So no, as I said, I've been uh, like a research officer in the army for mm. four years. Yeah. So then I wrote the code a lot, but uh, I see. Uh, but not after like was, getting your PhD. Basically, not after. I mean, sometimes my uh, my co-authors were. Uh, yeah. Now I think I cannot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't written uh, <laughs> yeah. for for many many years, but uh, but it's useful. I, I mean, so some so often some students are doing it that we. It often gives you some intuition on what. Yeah, actually, I mean, I think I mean Python is actually very nice code. I mean, I don't know. Have you probably have done it before? You have with C or C plus plus or something. I mean, actually, that C plus plus also became more like Python because Python came. There are lots of structures that Python oh, yes. added, and they added now to C plus plus two, and is like there are lots of structures that Python added. But, uh, but Python I'm, actually is a very yeah. Yeah, but I'm so old that uh, when I programmed, it was in Fortran. Can you imagine? Yeah, okay, so yeah, yeah. So that was before that. Yeah, yeah. The first time was before that. Yeah. But yeah, I think yeah, actually basic, I mean the Python is a very nice abstract thing. I have actually one interesting. Yeah. I was uh, I was the like chair of the search committee last year, and then I want got these people essentially. The people voted essentially. At the least was like, I don't know, 200, 300 people that they needed to select some of these people. And then I have written, so okay, I needed to get each of these persons in a few rounds and count the number of votes, etc. So I just got actually a Python program that reads this one, the, the whole things and these votes and count it. But also there was like 
especially for string matching, etc., is much easier than others. But yeah, so that's actually Python is a good one if you at some point if you want to do some some very easily you can actually write that stuff and stuff. And I think uh, last probably not least, I think the uh, any I mean message for the high schooler or the, like the people who want to do math, computer science, what they should do. I mean, they are high school, the middle school. And they want to do, I mean, great mathematics. What they should do? Should you go like programming first, do math? Yeah, anything advice? Yeah, so all of those are, I, I think that my uh, my only maybe short advice is that uh, it's very important to do what you like, to do what you like and to, to like what you do, because, uh, because if you love your occupation, then, uh, then you, uh, there are more chances you will be good at it. And, uh, and actually, you know, we really spend uh, more than half of our time in life doing our work. So it's very important to, to like what we are working in and not to think too much of what uh, to try to choose an area that uh, will be practical or will be useful. If you are good at what you do, you will find your way. So if uh, someone uh, in high school that is interested in computer science finds that programming is what uh, he or she likes, then, uh, then this is fine. If it's theory, then this is also fine, but uh, but it's important to be uh, curious about uh, about what uh, what you're doing. Uh, and in general, of course, uh, computer science now is a, uh, is a is a great uh, area, uh, both practically and theoretically. It has fascinating problems. It's really changing the way the other scientific uh, and actually all academic areas are are behaving. Uh, like the more computational and algorithmic point of view now appears uh, everywhere. So somehow to be interested in, uh, in computer science, in mathematics is, uh, is a great thing for, uh, for people that uh, like to do it. Uh, great. Yeah, I think it thanks a lot. I think I enjoyed a lot. I learned a lot. And hopefully people, I mean, who will watch this one over all media and also in the future, because it will be, everything would be on the YouTube as well as other things and also on podcasts. So, and this is, I think one thing that we have, we don't have any slides, we just talk. So they can listen when they drive or they walk or they exercise anything. I think that would be a good thing. Thanks for your time. I think that was a great uh, thing. If you have any final things you can say, otherwise we can. No, I think, I mean, we did, so now it's uh, three hours. Three hours. <laughs> so, so I only, I mean, I enjoyed it. And, uh, and let me thank you for indeed uh, uh, this initiative and, uh, and for uh, uh, investing so much time in, uh, in organizing uh, uh, this, uh, this thing. Was nice. yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot. So bye, everyone. And thanks okay. a lot. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thanks, uh, bye. Bye.